calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. By day, Nikki Payne is a curious tech anthropologist asking the right questions to deliver better digital services. By night, she dreams of ways to subvert canon literature. She's a member of Smut U, a premium feminist writing collective, and is a cat lady with no cats. Nikki, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bianca. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. Firstly, before we dive into this book where there is so much to unpack, what does a tech anthropologist do exactly? It sounds really fascinating. Right now, I currently work in the federal government. And whenever the federal government is building out a new technology, a new website, a new like technical process, there's a distance between how engineers build something and how people interact with it. And oftentimes they need a little human translation, right? To say, hey, how are people actually gonna use this government service? How are people actually going to use this technical service? So making sure that people have access to the government services that they need in a way that they actually utilize them. I am a a tech anthropologist, user experience researcher, like all kinds of titles for it, but we essentially connect humans with technology. Yeah, it sounds like you're a translator in that sphere, which is awesome. Okay, so for our listeners, I am going to read you the jacket copy for the book that we are discussing. It is Sex, Lies, and Sensibility. So here we go. There's never a good time to learn you are your father's secret child, especially not at the reading of his will. With their father's affairs laid bare and Nora's sensible reputation in tatters due to a viral video scandal, she and her free-spirited sister have nothing left but a rustic inn in the middle of nowhere and each other. What's more, they need to revamp the inn before Labor Day or they lose it all. Nora hasn't even knocked the traveling dust off last season's designer boots when she's confronted with three problems. One, she really should have watched more HGTV. Two, she hasn't seen another black person for miles. Three, a tall dark stranger has already staked a claim on their property. Native Abenaki eco-tour guide Ennis Bear Friedman has seen hapless tourists come and go. When he spots two pampered city girls at his unofficial headquarters, he expects them to catch a flight out of the inhospitable coastal main backwards within a week's time. But Nora turns out, is made of sterner stuff, and she rolls up her sleeves to breathe new life into the inn. She unwittingly reignites a flood of emotions inside a bear that he had very intentionally suppressed. Their connection is electric, their desire palpable, but Bear's silence about his mysterious past might turn out to be the one thing that sends Nora packing. Now, 
this is a kind of retelling of Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. And we will get into all of that shortly. But for our listeners who've forgotten the storyline of Sense and Sensibility, here that is. Right? So Marianne Dashwood wears her heart on her sleeve, and when she falls in love with the dashing but unsuitable John Willoughby, she ignores her sister Eleanor's warning that her impulsive behavior leaves her open to gossip and innuendo. Meanwhile, Eleanor, always sensitive to social convention, is struggling to conceal her own romantic disappointment, even from those closest to her. Through their parallel experience of love and its threatened loss, the sisters learn that sense must mix with sensibility if they are to find personal happiness in a society where status and money govern the rules of love. Right, Nikki, when I think about what you sat down to do when you wrote this book, it blows my mind. I want us to unpack from start to finish how you approach it. So for our listeners, so Austin's books are incredible works of fiction that have influenced literature since their publication, right? And Nikki has acknowledged that they cannot relate to her experience as a black woman living in Maryland. Now, Nikki, you have a doctorate in cultural anthropology. You've used Austin's framework to do your own ethnographic work, penning romance novels that center diversity, sexual politics, and class conflict in a way that your modern audience can recognize and that you yourself, Nikki, care about. Please take us through this process from why you chose Austin. Okay. Well, I'll start from the from the very beginning. Okay, it was the year of our Lord, nineteen ninety five. Okay, a couple of things happened. I think things happened in triplicate in that year, quadruplicate if that's a word. One, I was coming of age. I was coming of age as a woman, right? And also, Clueless dropped, and Clueless was just this sea change. It was like perfect teenage literature, right? It was just. <laughs> Fantastic. All the slang as if everyone wanted to dress like that. Everyone wanted that software that Cher had that like picked her clothes. Just it was everything. And then I found out that that was a retelling of Emma. And I'm like, oh, oh my gosh, Emma, Jane Austen. Let me let me get into white folks business. Let's see what's happening here. So I started to read Emma and I was like, well, OK, it, it was good. And then also in that year, that eight hour 1995 Pride and Prejudice premieres on the BBC with Colin Firth just getting out of the water. Oh right? my God, um, that man getting I mean, out of the water, the lust that that inspired in me. Are, like we're all human beings, right? And I'm just sitting there watching this and I'm like 11 or 12 years old and I'm like, this better not awaken anything in me. <laughs> it better not, right? <laughs> so that same year, if you can believe it, that just that aching sense and sensibility came out with Emma Thompson. She does that iconic breakdown at the end. She just starts like crying on the seat on the chaise lounge. just very prettily. Like that was like, we're, I'm only human. Right. And like all of that happened in one year. And then like two years later, I think it was like 1997 that Brandy Cinderella with Brandy and Whitney Houston came out. And like all of those things somehow formed this, origin story in my brain. So like Jane Austen was just burned into the my core memories, right? And so when we talk about like why Jane Austen, why start like this, I just happened to come of age and be alive, you know, in 1995 during this time where there's this huge resurgence of her work and her literature on the big screen. Back when media wasn't really disparate the way it is now. 
everyone saw that. Everyone watched Clueless, right? And so there was just this moment of like congealed Jane Austen-ness that I don't know if we'll ever have that moment again, but I was I was there and I was coming of age. And so it's just the stories are there, right? Right. So, okay, that explains the, the passion ignited for Jane Austen. When it comes to writing a book like this, how did you approach it in terms of outlining? How did you decide, okay, these are the plot points I'm going to keep. These are the characters I'm going to keep, but I'm going to change them to this degree. How do you sit down with the original text, be in conversation with that text, but make it a Nikki Payne version of that? Oh, absolutely. I always start with um, with a, a kind of cultural conception, right? So I'll start off with Pride and Protest first. As a researcher, my original research was on aesthetics and power and how people see things as beautiful and what that association is with power and like what that means. And in that, there was this huge research article that came out about online dating. And it found that Black women and Asian men were like the least responded to on these like dating apps. And they were perceived to have like less sexual capital because of our notions of what is masculine, because of our notions of what is feminine and and delicate and beautiful, right? And so when I was thinking about retelling Jane Austen, which honestly I always am, I thought about like, what would it look like to make these canonical characters? Elizabeth Bennet is archetypically delightful and desirable. And Mr. Dorsey is also like canonically hot and brooding. And like, what would it mean to put these like black and Asian bodies in these archetypical spaces. What has to change? What has to stay the same? And Pride and Protest is remarkably loyal to the framework of Pride and Prejudice because I was testing what types of things needed to change when you took out the foundation, when you yanked out that the foundation of just kind of petite gentry, do you know what I mean? Of like kind of white, low-level aristocracy. Like what changed? And honestly, for a Pride and Protest, not a lot. Because what I love about Jane Austen is that she's poking fun at the societal norms and broad themes of a culture. And whether that's true in Regency or whether that's true now, like today, you look up, hey, we still got societal norms. We still have hierarchical systems of value that are worth taking a look at and worth maybe making fun of also. So that was that process for Pride and Protest. But for Sex, Lies, and Sensibility, I wanted to think about Eleanor and Marianne. They are kind of made impoverished by their weak-willed brother who like bends to the will of Fanny. And they are forced to move into the country and kind of settle there and be happy there. And it's a lowering of their circumstances. But I wanted to think about like this notion of like land owning and kind of what it means to, you know, have to move away from your ancestral land to another place. And also to like really dislocate these women and make it, when you think about the marriage market, right? And the, their space for being like viable citizens. Like, what does that mean to up and completely move? Well, if they move to Atlanta, what would that change for their stakes? But I, I thought about Maine as this place that lives, at least in Black mythology, as a place where, you know, Black folks in Maine, like, what are you doing there? <laughs> and so... To create that sense of like, what are these girls going to do? How are they going to find home? How are they going to recreate that sense of of settling in and being 
at home in this place that's, you know, pretty supposedly inhospitable to, to different types of presences. And the reason why I thought it was so important that her love interest be indigenous, one, I think I'm just on a project to make sure that like kind of romance decenters whiteness a little bit. Like sometimes when we think about interracial romances, it's like, okay, who's the white guy in this story, right? And just like thinking about kind of what it means for Black women to explore outside of their original context, because all of my characters are on this journey of discovering themselves and what that means if that character is kind of outside of their imagination, right? So all of this to say, thinking about this notion of land, having these Black women come to Maine, having been wheeled a property, right, that they could care less about and didn't even know about, to find someone already using it and having that person be Indigenous. There's a sticky question as soon as they land of like, hey, this is my land. Do we want to have that conversation like with an Indigenous person, right? And right off the bat, he accuses her of Christopher Columbusing, right? <laughs> and, <Love she's>, <laughs> and she's like, Me, can I can I even do that, right? And so always, I'm always in my like cultural anthropology bag of just like opening that question up. Like, what does that mean when a, a Black body kind of inhabits this like colonial framework or space? Is this her land? How does she manage this? And so that was my original conception was honestly starting with that question of land and having that be a really interesting space for these two characters to see themselves um, all over again and really to see each other in in a different space. Yeah. There's a lot there that I want to unpack, but since you mentioned the author's note, uh, the, you know, writing from a First Nations kind of perspective, can you read us your author's note? Because I think it's really a really smart and insightful note. Oh, sure. Okay. So I'll start. The process of writing this book was literally and figuratively a journey. While the tale I tell is not an Abenaki story, at its heart, it's still a story about two Black women who are forced to make a new way for themselves. My endeavor to write about a romantic hero from such a community was guided by a profound sense of respect, humility, and a deep ethnographic engagement. I put on my cultural anthropologist hat and spent months immersed in the rich cultural tapestry of the Wabanaki Confederacy in Maine. And this is a confederation encompassing the Penobscot, the Passamaquoddy, the Maliseet, and Mi'kmaq tribes, as well as my hero's tribe, the Abenaki, though in less numbers. Careless, even harmful depictions of people of color in media, like romance, have made communities close ranks around issues of representation. And as such, I understand that this character's existence, while born of my imagination, is still inherently representative. So it is out of an anti-exploitative, anti-racist humility that I attempted, with extreme care, to tell a story that is as compelling as it is true to my character's lived experience. I respected Bear's truths and resisted homogenizing or oversimplifying his experiences to make them palatable to mainstream audiences. The same dedication was applied in my research with the African-American community in Maine and track athletes in my home state. As a Black woman in America, I could write for a century and still not scratch the surface of the vast spectrum of experiences and stories within the African-American community. And yet, there are some who would recite the oft-touted wisdom to write what you know, right? We all have heard it. Um, and we don't have to we don't have to agree on this, sis, but we we don't actually know that much, right? So empathy, especially in a creative endeavor, is largely an endeavor of imagination. So I'm excited for you to delve into Nora and Bear's world. And of course, I have the anxiety of any artist showing their art to the world, but I also have the peace of a creative who's who's done the work and with love to boot. 
with respect and sincerity, Nikki Payne. Amazing, Nikki. So along that whole journey, did you bring in authenticity readers uh, to be checking? Can you just tell us a bit about how that process went? Right. So it's it's a, a, a kind of tense, not tense, but it's a tricky situation, right? Because authenticity reading, all of those things, that's labor, right? So what I wanted to do was connect with the community, but also not have a sense of like they're doing me some sort of favor, right, by reading the book. So absolutely, I offered recompense for reading the book and and their honest opinion back. And I changed some things. And there are some things that I heard in interviews that I included in the book that they respectfully asked me not to include in the book. And I didn't, right? So there were like there was a real conversation. And that's what I think writing is. It's a conversation. And there's still going to be areas that I absolutely probably like didn't get right. And that that's the risk you take, kind of stretching and writing outside of your experience. But I would never I would never not do it, right? <laughs> I would never not do it. I think that if I were in this space of just kind of writing about Southern black women, you know what I mean? I don't know if that's all I want to do for the rest of my life. I, I like to build worlds that people inhabit that are diverse and bright and bursting with humanity. And I'm always going to try to get it right. But of course, I'm, I'm not in that subjectivity. So I'm just, you know, opening myself up to what that could look like. Yeah. And for our listeners, you know, it is so important, like Nikki said, to pay your authenticity or your sensitivity readers. Absolutely. If you don't know people in the sphere, there are websites like Readsy mm-hmm. or Fiverr where authenticity readers are listed and you can hire them and you pay them for their work. And the most important thing is to listen to their feedback. Yes. It's a conversation, it's not a critique. It's not like you can kind of take or leave or like not believe, right? Right. right. And yeah. you're not just doing it to tick off the box. Oh, authenticity reader check, you know, but not like factoring in what they say. Okay. So moving on to the story now, how much shorthand can you use, Nikki, when you are doing a retelling? So how much can you depend on the fact that the reader knows who this character is, who the that character is, how much should you stick close to the true nature of that character and how much can you deviate? This is such a good question because I personally love retellings. So as a rule, if someone like if on the back, if someone says like, this is a retelling of X, I'm just like, I'm in like, please say less, right? <laughs> because I love the play. I love like as a child growing up in like the hip hop era, it was literally all about taking a track, sampling it, creating something different. And like the joy, right, of hearing a fantastic sample are the notes that you remember, right? And also what they do interesting and new. So what I'd love about Jane Austen is like you're writing almost these parallel tracks. There's this sense where you're writing for the Jane Austen girlies, right? Like there's the fandom, you're just like, they're going to love this gag, right? And it's so, it's such inside baseball It is such tiny things that don't take away from the story. Like these aren't huge plot points that affect the character that you have to know Jane Austen. But there are tiny little details that fill and enrich that character's life that you absolutely recognize. Like if I did not include the word or a poem about dead leaves in in this book, like, am I even a Jane Austen fangirl? Do you know what I mean? So like... (laughs) For some who read this, it will be a throwaway line, right? It will be like, okay, so she's she's 
into dead leaves. Marianne, of course, is, you know, obsessed with that. But for the Jane Austen fangirls, they'll say, right, there's the gag. And so I love, I love those tiny moments where it will feel like a throwaway line. When, when Bear, my, my Edward says, you know, I don't have a, the propensity, you know, for those beautiful words. Like this is, that is fundamentally Edward, right? Who Marianne says, oh, he's a brute. You know, like I can't, I can't deal with him. And so you're writing these stories that are general in their sense of like, here's this man who is bound by duty and is falling in love. And what is he going to do? And here's this woman who will put everyone's desires in front of her own and finally has to snatch something for herself and doesn't know how to do it. And that's a broad and universal story, right? But it's in those like tiny, delicate, and even funny gags and details that you'll find for, for the Jane Austen fangirlies, those like perfect little ball malts that make you go, oh, there it is. There it is, right? When you read a retelling, you read the story, but then you also read the little notes of like, oh, there's Gaston, or there, you know, there's the, the talking teapot, right? Yen's dialogue in the beginning I was just like oh man I'm getting all the feels from it you know and that evolves as the thing goes on because she speaks differently to different people and she's just hilarious and I absolutely loved her and just the way she responds to people you know and you you manage to bring in so much humor because there's a moment where she's meeting with you know Bear and his sister or is it sister or cousin Moxie cousin 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 Moxie right And Yan just wants to unpack and pay tribute to the ancestors and to the tribal land. And they they like, please don't do that. (laughs) Yes. There's also this gag that in particularly in the Americas, like everyone wants to attach themselves to some like indigenous history. And something that I was learning in my interviews is this word that they call like generic and this and it's this sense of this like people you know ascribing there's always a Cherokee great grandmother just everywhere there's always and particularly in, in like black lore everyone has this Cherokee like great grandmother or ancestor that they tout out right and so like making that a real part of their conversation of like Yan you know trying to build connection by also like giving people the creeps a little bit by her, you know, by her over-enthusiastic, I too am native, you know, let me tell you about my Cherokee grandmother. And then, and, and then her sister's like, uh, we had genetic testing that categorically refutes that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, but it's like, it doesn't even matter because it's the lore, right? It's the lore of like being super native to the land that everyone it like falls into. And Nora wanted to like stop her sister from the whole story she eventually tells it, which, you know, makes Moxie just, you know, cut her off. But, <laughs> but you know, still, it's, it's this story that, that she wants to tell. And it's very much Yan. So, like, this is who we are. We're free. Like, I want to I wanna share this tribute. I want to do all of these, you know, things for you. And Moxie and Bear don't see it um, that way. They see themselves, one, as, you know, kind of modern business people trying to have a business connection. And she is trying to be incredibly mystical about their existence and they're really kind of over that yeah Yeah, she wants to connect at the soul level and then they're like no can we talk about reframing things like scandal in the age of jane austen's time and in today's time so we have nora who's had this sex tape scandal right Mm -hmm. which is very different scandal in today's times compared to anything that happened in jane austen's time so how Mm -hmm. do you take scandal from that time and then reframe it so that it feels real in today's times. 
That's a fantastic question because I feel like, particularly for Sense and Sensibility, that the broad theme in that book is about gossip. It is about representation. It is so much overhearing. It is so much someone told me like the all the rumors about there's a Mr. F in your future, you know, like, so there's so much speculation. There's so much gossip that Eleanor in Sense and Sensibility is trying so hard to manage and stay on top of everyone's expectations of her own relationship. So she downplays that while also telling her sister, like, hey, you need to chill. People are talking. Look at how you got into that carriage with him. Everyone's going to say X, Y, Z. So she's super observant of like how society sees her. And I wanted to think to go deeper with Nora to say like, what would make a person in 2024 so hypervigilant about their own perception? And you think about the type of thing that happens, you know, kind of with relative, <laughs> with relative frequency, right? It's just kind of like being viral for the wrong thing. And that there are people walking around who have like viral memes about their face, viral memes about like everything and you can walk into a space and people will go, hmm, I don't know where I've seen you or I can't place your face, but X, Y, Z. So it's just her major fear that someone's going to come in and immediately kind of destabilize her social standing and say, oh, you're not this. You're you're here. You're this. I know exactly how to deal with you. And it's happened so much that she has started, as you will read in the book, to build out this framework of just kind of, I know exactly what's going to happen here, right? I know exactly how this is going to play out. And she she leans into that as a way to understand and manage her own reactions to outside stimuli. So yeah, it's ultimately about reputation management. It's about gossip. And it's about whether you are willing to be fully who you are, peel off those layers of shame. Bear also is really got the the hero edit, right? <laughs> Bear got the hero edit in his, in his life. It's so uncomfortable in that space that he's like, you know, his stomach is turned up in knots all the time about him being a hero. And yet he can't just tell the truth. Hey, I'm just I'm just kind of kind of a shitty guy. I don't know what to tell you. you know? and, and and I really loved as well how that personal universal element. So I don't think there's a woman in the world who cannot imagine what it must be like to go viral for a sex tape that your boyfriend, someone you yeah. trusted, yeah. you know, put up on the internet and whatever, and to have people re- frame you and go, oh, I know you based on however many minutes of your life, right? Yep. So it was a good entry point immediately because for me, I was immediately like, oh my God, I cannot, like to just think about what she must have been through. And so she's a bit prickly and she's a bit tough, but you immediately know why she's like that, right? Because mm -hmm. she has had to become like that. So that's yep. a great way to immediately get, you know, your readers on board with this kind of character. One last thing, Nikki, because we're pretty much out of time and I don't know how this oh, happened. No. So, so oh, no. I want to read this part to our listeners because we're always saying on the podcast, be very careful about giving tons of backstory in the early pages. It drags the story back. People don't need yes. it. You can see here how we get this backstory. So listen to this. It's on page five. Here's what happens when you make a hot sex tape with your college boyfriend. One, first, do not make a hot sex tape with your college boyfriend. He will be your boyfriend for three more months, tops. And if you're incredibly ridiculous and say yes, don't be the super cool girlfriend when he suggests you put it online. Do not say, yeah, it's cool. It's a little sexy to be watched, right? It won't be sexy. It will only make you infamous in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area for an excruciatingly long time. You'll learn fast that you're not bulletproof. Then two, because of the morality clause, you'll lose your track scholarship. You loved track more than you loved your boyfriend. 
Three, you'll get a nickname like Nasty Nora. Four, you'll drop out of college, nine credits, shy of your degree. Five, instead of being a hot PE teacher at a progressive artsy elementary school, you'll be lucky to get a job as a pharmacy tech at a big chain drugstore. Boom, we've got these five bullet points. And in this, Nikki tells us huge amounts of backstory. So that was just such a clever craft thing to do, Nikki. Can you chat a bit about that? Yes, I love that framework that ended up like framing up the way Nora sees the world is that this consequence boulder, right? This like, if you give a mouse a cookie, which is, you know, my book origin story of just like, if you do this small thing, she imagines that everything craters into something big or disastrous. And so like telling her backstory within her framework, it just really made sense to say like, because I did these things, these are the boom, 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 enormous consequences of this. And you will see in the book that she comes back to this refrain whenever she's about to make a major decision. She goes back to say, mm, what's going to happen here? Boom, 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 boom. Shouldn't do it. It always ends up with that she shouldn't do it, by the way. That's not a spoiler. You know? But it's a way that she keeps herself small and keeps her emotions in check and keeps her life manageable. And so even though it starts as this way to give incredible backstory, it also redoubles as this way to like where she's either denying emotion or gaining emotion or like trying to make these major decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's breaking the fourth wall. Cause she's kind of speaking to yes. the reader. She's like, mm-hmm. if you want to do this, don't do this. Yeah. Right? She has it in her bullet points, but it's just like an excellent, excellent technique. So for those of you who are struggling with backstory and who feel like backstory has to be a flashback or backstory has to be exposition, right. there are ways to get creative with backstory. And this is definitely one of them. Nikki, this is the kind of book you and I could talk about for weeks, never mind like hours. And, <laughs> and I'm so sorry that our time is up for our listeners please get this book. We're linking to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Support an independent bookstore, support the podcast, support Nikki at the same time. But there is just so much to learn about the craft of writing. This is a book that makes you think, it challenges you. It's not what you think. I can promise you that. I picked it up thinking I knew what it was going to be. And it was so much more than that. And that is a gift that a book gives. So we wish you much luck with this, Nikki. And we hope to have you on for the next one. Thank you so much, Bianca. This was such a joy. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. 
This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. It's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest is the author of Miss Austin Investigates. She grew up in southeast London where she still lives with her husband, two daughters and far too many pets. If you listen to the podcast, you know there is no such thing as far too many pets, right? She's addicted to stories and studied English literature at Bristol University and information science at City University London. She began work as a librarian under the false impression she could sit and read all day before becoming a communications consultant. It's my pleasure to welcome Jessica Bull. Jessica, welcome to the show. Hi, Bianca. It's so wonderful to talk to you at last. Jessica, there is so much to love about this book. There is so much to unpack. It was just such a delight to read. I've read all Jane Austen's books and I have loved them, but I am not like a super, super fan like many people are. But I just absolutely love this. It's made me want to go back and reread all of her books now. So that's where we at. So can you tell us a bit more about your Jane Austen inspired murder mystery series and where you got the idea for it? 
Sure. It's so wonderful to hear you say that, Bianca. Thank you so much. So firstly, I, I don't think I decided to write a Jane Austen mystery and then did all the research. I'm just an enormous Jane Austen fan. I've been in love with her since I was about 17, since that first 1995 Pride and Prejudice came out on the BBC. I just fell head over heels in love with her. And and Colin Firth, can I just and say? Colin Firth. Can and just Colin Firth. Can I just say that thirst trap that was Colin Firth <laughs> as Mr. Darcy, right? Let's acknowledge He's responsible that for a million careers in publishing and writing, I think. So, and I don't think any Mr. Darcy has ever lived up to him, but that's my my opinion. Okay, carry on. I, I do. I do like the 1995 too. I, I can't, don't make me choose between my children. But I just, I've always loved her. And I particularly loved Northanger Abbey. So after that first Pride and Prejudice, I went into school and I asked my English teacher, you know, who is Jane Austen? Where is she on the syllabus? Why aren't we studying her? And he sent me off to read Northanger Abbey. And I just I just loved it. That passage where she talked about what is a novel and then she goes on to give her defence of the novel. I just felt like she was speaking straight to my heart. And I think that's how a lot of people feel about Jane Austen. She's such a powerful writer. that When she speaks to you, you just feel it straight in the heart. So I just casually then after that. Through a lifetime, researched Jane Austen, read all her books, like you said, and then visited like all the homes that she'd lived in, really so that I didn't even notice that I was doing it. And then I think with 2020, with COVID, I, like a lot of people, found it really difficult. So I lent into the things that really made me happy and made me feel kind of cosy and supported. And Jane Austen was one of those. So that's when I really started studying her life in a more kind of rigorous way. And it's also when I started writing again after quite a long break. And it really struck me reading her letters and reading about her life story that although I'd enjoyed lots of interpretations of her, and I think especially the two big films, I'd never found a portrayal of Jane Austen, which I felt captured the witty, clever, funny, joyful, irreverent woman that I believe she was. And then I had this horrifying moment of, well, you're a writer, Jess, why don't you try and capture that? And it was, <laughs> it was terrifying, to be honest. So I kind of sat on it for a little while and thought about how I would do that. And I didn't want to write a straight biography that didn't really inspire me. And I think I was listening to Hamilton a lot at the time. And I was thinking about how Lin-Manuel Miranda had created a tribute to someone he really admired, but he'd done it in completely his own way. And at the time, I was writing a kind of romance mystery. And I thought, what if I took everything that I know about Jane Austen and I blended it with that really traditional classic whodunit? Would I be able to have enough facts in there? to tell you what a courageous and wonderful woman she was and then blend it with the fiction inspired by her own fiction to make it a really pacey kind of whodunit. Yeah boy and did you achieve that so you know it was interesting because I thought after Pride and Prejudice and Zombies that the market was like saturated you know for reimaginings and I think it kind of was but looking at the author's life rather than reimagining her work was a really really whole new way of coming at it, which which I really appreciated. Now, there was a four-way auction for just for the North American rights, which resulted in a six-figure deal for two books for you. Now, again, that is something writers dream about, which is incredible for a debut. Even prior to that, can you take us through the journey to publication in terms of 
finding an agent, how long that took, how long the revision process took, etc. Sure. So my story is is definitely one of persistence paying off. So this isn't the first novel I've written at all. So I started trying to find an agent and publisher for a previous novel in 2011, I think, and just met with lots of kind of silence, mostly. I think your worst fear as a writer is that you send things out and there's going to be lots of no's, but it's kind of worse when you get nothing. Everyone just ignores you. But I did get some feedback from a couple of agents at the time, but I didn't realise really how great that was. I thought I just heard no. I didn't hear try harder, work harder. So I just had my second daughter at the time and So I focused on work for a few years and then kind of put that dream on the shelf. And then, as I mentioned, COVID I found really hard and I leant back on the things that brought me joy um, and that calmed me down when I was feeling anxious. And Austin was one and writing was one. And I was reading about her life and how she'd struggled to write, you know, sometimes moving from home to home with very little hope of being published, sometimes even brewing her own ink, writing longhand. And I thought, what am I doing? Like there's a laptop in front of me, just get on with it. So I wrote another novel then, so like a second one. And then I tried to query that. And I thought that what I needed to do was to give myself permission to believe in that dream because I'd been quite scared of it of that ambition in case I was deluding myself or you know that it wasn't going to go anywhere if there's disappointment and instead of focusing so much on that goal I wanted to just focus on the craft and build a support network around me to really understand how publishing works so I threw myself into doing every course that I could find and then after doing that I realized I was even further away because there was so much that I had to learn So I wrote a third novel then, which was my first foray into historical fiction. And then I needed to edit that because I'd made all the mistakes that first time novelists normally make. You know, it was dual POV, like different timelines. It was multi-genre. It was everything. And it was nothing because of that. So I then had this idea about Jane Austen because when I was revising that novel, I I realised that because it, it was trying to be everything, but the one thing that was working was that I'd based the main character on Jane Austen. She wasn't called Jane Austen, but she was born in the same year. She was a clergyman's daughter. She had a sister and I'd used her kind of spirit and the kind of the Austen influences to really bring her alive. So that was the one thing that it had going for it. So I then kind of really focused on, okay, I'll, I'll take all that back and I'll make her in a sense, one of her own characters, because all Austin characters are actually sleuths when you think about it. Think of Elizabeth Bennet kind of comparing Darcy's account of what happens to Wickham's and then questioning the housekeeper or Catherine Morland going so far as to accuse General Tilney of murdering his wife. They're all doing that listening, observing and judging. So once I'd had that idea, I was just, you know, on fire I just wrote it and wrote it and wrote it and I I didn't want to do anything else I was just that was you know it was brilliant so then I had a very scrappy manuscript I'd say looking back but obviously I thought it was great and I (laughs) I sent it to a handful of agents and I knew something was different with this one because instead of just getting silence or just getting no I started to get no but 
think about doing like something like this and no but if you rewrite it in this way then come back to me and then then I started getting the full requests and that was brilliant and I think I had about five or six fulls out and I realized that then I needed to query the agents who I like my dream agents because you know this is this is the best time when you can capitalize on all this interest so I queried Juliet Mushins who represent some giants of the cosy crime genre and also some historical fiction authors who I absolutely love and amazingly within 24 hours she'd requested the full and then she'd requested representation within a week so it's that classic thing of nothing happens fast in publishing until it does and then yeah she just took over and we edited it in terms of the, the career and the business side of it and I didn't have to worry about that anymore and I could just benefit from all her wisdom and I think we did three or four rounds of revision and then yeah not long after it went on submission we started getting the pre and then eventually went to auction. I have goosebumps hearing all of this. It's just, <laughs> it's wonderful, but especially because you put in the work, you know, that's again, the thing that authors, you know, we, I remember my first two books that I wrote, I thought they were great. I made every mistake. I sent them out to everyone. Also got crickets. And, and even when I did get feedback, like you say, you just hear no. And it was only once I started studying writing, taking it seriously, that I was like, oh, my God, I know nothing. Like, I made every mistake in the book and and then, you know, started taking it seriously. But it's like it's a whole process. And you had to go through all of that to get to this immense success that you've had, you know. And it's the tenacity and it's the not giving up. Because can you imagine if after those first no's you were like, okay, I'm just not a good enough writer? Well, I, you know, I did that for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> and then I woke up and thought, oh my goodness, what am I doing? I need to, you know, reignite this dream, really. And I think it was you know, coming from that place of not knowing how publishing worked and being so, like, distanced from it. And as soon as I started speaking to other writers and really hearing the, the true stories behind it, and listening to your podcast was a huge part of that for me. It was one of the ways that I threw myself into being a writer and letting myself have that dream. Yeah, then I realised that actually, you know, it's never that easy. It's not that easy for anyone today, very rarely. And it, and it wasn't that easy for Jane Austen. And what if she'd given up? Like, can you imagine? Oh my God, I don't want to imagine. <laughs> and we're so honoured to have been a part of your journey. And, you know, when I think there's that saying, and I'm butchering it completely, it's like someone once gave me a box of darkness and it took me a long time to realise that this too was a gift. And I feel like COVID, weirdly, for you personally, was this gift, you know, because I feel like if you didn't have that time, you weren't going to look for the comfort and maybe you wouldn't have gone back to the writing. So it's also how we take these moments of adversity and, you know, how we then use them or reframe, them, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I feel like I'm more myself after COVID. I, I kind of became a condensed version because I couldn't kind of hide all these weird geeky obsessions that I have. And I didn't have time for anything that I didn't enjoy or want to do anymore. I'm just, you know, more, more me than ever. No, I love it. And I love how you immerse yourself in this world, Jessica. I love seeing you on social media and you go to Jane Austen type balls and you have the dresses <laughs> made. And you know what? I look at these dresses and I'm like... Damn it, why could I have not lived in this era? Because these dresses would actually look flattering on me instead of my era's fashion things or bloody skinny jeans and shit. And I'm like, I needed those kinds of dresses. But you, 
do you like have these dresses made or you make your own dresses don't you I do a bit of both so yeah I, I buy some of it and yeah I've, I've I'm a very amateur seamstress and I suffer from a kind of how hard can it be itis I think handed down to me from my mum in that you know I'll see something and I think well, I'll give it a go I'll, I'll make that so yeah I do a bit of both and yeah it's been really fun I think again covid I discovered that there were there were YouTube videos of all these people in Bath, especially at Bulls and like dressed up in, in Jane Austen clothing. And I just thought I've been wasting my life, you know, like because <laughs> that's part of what we what we read for, isn't it? It's to totally immerse ourselves in that world. And it's wonderful to be able to do that in your imagination and then to get the chance to do that in real life as well. It's just so much fun. And I really think it it's just another way of understanding how that world works and adding to it when you're writing because you know the the whole regency dancing is a real kind of courtship ritual in Jane Austen's novels and when you you don't really understand how it works until you're there and you do it and then when you do do that it can then inspire you or it inspired me definitely to write some of the scenes in Miss Austin Investigates where you've got that really formal setting and you're trying to have a conversation with someone and then you've got to think about you know being on display in a ballroom and moving around that space and hopefully it really makes it much more real when it gets onto the page. Yeah yeah it adds huge amounts of of authenticity to actually experience it which is amazing. So we're gonna get to the book now I just wanted to ask when you pitched this to the agent what were your comps? How did how did you comp this Richard Osman meets Jane Austen so yeah it was and Agatha Christie meets Jane Austen as well so I worried with the Agatha Christie meets Jane Austen because it was so kind of not you always say you've got to choose a relevant comp you've got to choose something really recent ideally something that's been published in the last five years so I was like well they're a bit old (laughs) so yeah I think I went for the um, Richard Osman which is you know by word for cozy crime and then yeah Jane Austen. The great thing about Agatha Christie is she's having a huge revival in terms of the films that are now being remade, etc. You know, she's become hugely relevant again. I was at a bookstore in Palm Springs a few weeks back and I was enormously surprised to find an entire shelf that was just Agatha Christie's that had been re-released or whatever. So they'd come back again. But yeah, Richard Osman, great, great comp. I love the Thursday Murder Club. So so that was a great way to go. Right. So something else I want to point out is that this is a chunkster of a book. It's enormous, isn't it? <laughs> right. It's enormous. The, the advanced reader copy is like 435 pages. Now, yeah. The, the font is pretty big, which I appreciate because when I get these tiny font things, I struggle with it. But how many words is it? It's 110,000. So I kept the original manuscripts that my agent offered representation for was only 75,000. And it grew and it grew with every iteration. The story didn't really change that much, but it just became more concentrated. And I kept expecting someone to say, this is all great, Jess, but what we really need you to do now is like to cut it to like nine to five or something. But they didn't. They just let me keep going. And I will say, though, that the advanced reader copy does have the first chapter of the next book in it. So it's not that long. 
I excluded that when I counted the pages. I do want you to oh, know. No. But but no, the reason I'm pointing this out is for our listeners, you know, you hear us say on Books with Hawks, oh, try and keep it under this many words for a debut. But, you know, my debut, I think, was 110,000 when we sold it and it got up to 120,000 in edits. And, you know, you've done the same with yours. And here's the thing. A book needs to be as long as it needs to be. And I think with historical fiction, there's all this world building that you need to do. So, yeah, I feel like I'm allowed an extra 10% for that, maybe. Yeah. And, and I mean, it didn't feel like a long book. It was the kind of book that you wanted it to last longer. You didn't want it to end soon. And so, you know, for our listeners, these are guidelines we're giving you. 80,000 words, a guideline for a debut. But then you have people like Jess who just breaks that rule and maybe you will too. Did you pitch it as having series potential? Because that's another thing we say in terms of the query letters. Be careful to say series potential or the first in a series of books. How did you position that? Absolutely. It was a series from the words go. And the reason for that was because there's so much that I want to say about Jane Austen and so many incidents in her life, relationships that I want to cover that it made it so much easier for me to write it and really concentrate on one time and one place if I told myself that it was going to be a series. And I actually kind of plotted out the first few books in the series before I started writing it so that I knew that I didn't have to address. So, for example, Cassandra, who's really, really important to Jane Austen, isn't actually in this novel that much she's she's a little bit in it at the end and Jane writes to her but I knew that that was too much to deal with as well as everything else so I just wanted to really really focus on that really important time when she's 1920 she's just met Tom Lefroy it's when the real Jane Austen's letters start and they were a big inspiration for the book so I just wanted to really kind of ring fence it and start there knowing that I could give myself room to develop all of the other things that I wanted to say in future novels. And that was incredibly smart because I think the temptation is, oh my God, let me put everything into this one book because I want this one to sell. And so you do need to guard against that. And again, for our listeners, have a look, Jess sent it out and was like, this is first in a series and that worked for her as well. So, you know, we, we say, try this, try that, but some people just blow it out the water and have huge success with that. Right. So what I want to ask is we start off with her sort of angling for a proposal from Tom Lefroy. Now, the story includes her real life friends, her real life family members. So in terms of sticking close to historical fact, but also deviating from it, like how was your process there in terms of, okay, this is what was happening in her life at the time. This is where she was living. These were the people she knew. And I'm going to stick close to that. But then I'm also going to make up my own shit as I go along. <laughs> so I think the thing that really helps me to do that was I started with the real facts. And I'd spent you know, a couple of years maybe mulling over the real facts of her life at that time. So reading the biographies and reading the letters. And I'd let the kind of anecdotes in her life inform the story rather than starting with the story and then trying to fit everyone in it so there was one character who a one real person who I always knew absolutely I needed to include in this novel and I wanted to be the heart of this novel and that was her brother George so George had epilepsy and he had learning difficulties and he was kind of 
unfairly, I think, erased from Jane Austen's story. So he's quite often a footnote. So he's her second eldest brother. And he didn't live with them at Steventon Rectory. But if you look at the records, I think it's really obvious that the family did love and value him and they looked after him all his life. So it was really important for me that he was there. And then with the crime aspect, I looked at the crimes that appear in her work and the ones that touch her life. So there was an incident in 1799 where her aunt, Jane Austen's aunt, so her mother's brother's wife, was arrested for shoplifting a card of lace in Bath. So she was a really wealthy woman, Mrs Lee Perot. She had everything that, you know, that life could give her. And she was caught coming out of this haberdashery with the lace that she'd bought, which I think was some black lace. And inside that same packet was some white lace. And the shopkeeper stopped her and they examined her and she was arrested and charged with this crime. And because it was Georgian England, the theft of anything worth over a shilling carried the death penalty. So in her case, and I mean, there were like over 200 crimes that carry the death penalty, like almost every crime carries the death penalty in Georgian England. It's really high stakes, which is wonderful for a novelist. So because of her wealth and her status, the family arranged for her to live with the jailer while she was waiting the trial. And she was eventually acquitted. And in her case, because it wasn't worth that much money, she probably would have had her sentence commuted to transportation to Australia. But it's such a fascinating crime. And I think it really upset all of the Austins to to watch their family member go through this. And it's kind of noticeable in Austin's own writing that it takes a more serious turn after that, because, you know, her writing before is, is full of criminals, people getting away with murder. So I thought, what if I took Georgie, this most kind of beloved member of the Austin family, and in one of his father's letters, there's a quote where he says, he's reflecting on his condition, and he says, we have this consolation, he cannot be a bad or a wicked child. So I thought, with a terrible imagination of a novelist, what if I took that most beloved member and I put him in the situation that Mrs. Lee Perret was in, then what would happen? How would everyone react? And then, yeah, I just let all the kind of real people and then the kind of imaginary people that who I needed to fill in do their parts. And it, and it just all came together, really. Incredible. So she was like the Winona Ryder of her family and her time, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. <laughs> that is an excellent comp. <laughs> Could afford to buy it, but took it anyway, right? So mm-hmm. something that I loved here as well is that you immediately introduce like a ticking clock. Because we're always saying on the podcast, in terms of stakes, you need to establish high stakes. And if you can have a ticking clock in terms of something has to be done by this time, then it helps with the urgency and the tension, etc. So you do that because Jane has six weeks to expose the real killer or Georgie will face the gallows. So how did this help you as an author in terms of creating that tension and hitting all the plot points you needed to? Yeah, I mean, it was just brilliant to be able to have that really, really high stakes situation and to be able to, you know, when I plotted it out, and I'm a big plotter, I think that's when my writing kind of turned a corner was when I started really plotting things and thinking about, you know, at a scene level, how to create tension and at a story level, how to create a character arc. So what was great about that ticking clock is it meant that I had a little bit of time to be silly and to let Jane make some terrible mistakes. And then as you get closer and closer and the stakes are higher and it's, you know, 
she really realizes that this is going to happen unless she does something George is going to be hanged for somebody else's crime then it could let the story get much darker and she could get much more desperate and her actions could become a little bit more wild really in pursuit of this goal of freeing her brother yeah excellent advice for our listeners if you're able to introduce like this ticking clock like Jessica says you know as we get closer to that the character gets more desperate the stakes go up the whole time because from the beginning there's high stakes right your brother's been accused of murder that's high stakes but when it's like if you don't figure it out in six weeks he's gonna die then the tension just keeps ratcheting up and the stakes get higher the whole time, which helps in that second act, which is so difficult to carry a character through. You know, I always say the first act and the third act are generally easy. It's the second act, which takes up 50% of the novel. That's generally much harder to keep readers turning pages. Now, one last question before our time's up. You said earlier that like one of your first books, it was too many genres. You weren't able to commit to it. What I love about this book is that it really straddles genres. You have got historical fiction. You've got a murder mystery. You've kind of got like romance elements weaved throughout, etc. So it really hits that sweet spot that publishers are often looking for. Because I feel like people who are going to pick up this book are people who love Jane Austen. You're going to have people who love sort of Regency books. You're going to have people who love murder mysteries. So I really think it's going to appeal to a very wide demographic. How difficult was it throughout the book to strike that balance? Because you're I think at your heart, a historical fiction author, because you know so much and you know all this detail, but you also can't get bogged down with that when you're writing a murder mystery. So how are you constantly striking the balance between these different genres? So it was difficult. That that was probably the hardest thing. I'm a, bit, a little bit greedy in my genre. So I absolutely would, would consider myself a historical author first, but I also love crime and, I, and I'm a huge romance fan and in my first three novels were all romances really and I read in all of those genres I read you know exhaustively across crime and romance and historical fiction and I think I wanted to take the bits that I loved about each of them and put them all in so you know, I love the kind of the emotion that you get in a romance and the real kind of interiority in terms of character arc and people learning and figuring things out about themselves. And with crime and especially cosy crime, which I think is the lighter end of the spectrum where you have an amateur sleuth, I love that that can sometimes verge on comedy and get a little bit silly and also be very very compulsive so every scene leads to the next scene and you're always like working out how to leave the reader on a cliffhanger between chapters and you know how to send your sleuth off in different directions that's gonna really pull the reader along with them and then with the historical fiction I kept telling myself that I didn't have room for everything I could only add the details that the reader absolutely had to know in order to understand the scene and the story at the time. So yeah, I, I kind of verged on the lightness and rather than telling you things about Jane Austen's life for the sake of it, I always had to make sure that if I was world building or telling you something, you absolutely needed to know it. So those are my kind of three things that I tried to take the emotion of a romance and the compulsiveness of a crime novel and then you know the, the stuff that you needed to know in order to be able to immerse yourself in the historical world. 
Yeah, excellently done. And I would argue that romance and crime are generally opposite sides of the same coin. You know, so often crime is crimes of passion, jealousy, rage is linked to the dark side of romance. So, yeah, I think the two are very much linked. So for our listeners, we are linking to Mr. Olson Investigates on our bookshop.org affiliate page. You will see there are different covers. There's one for the UK. There's one for the US. And there's one for Canada. Oh, a separate one for Canada. So it's out February in Canada with HarperCollins and February in the US with Union Square and Co. And then January in the UK. Amazing, amazing. I love seeing that. And I love how bookstagrammers, when they love a book, will actually buy all three copies because they love all the different <laughs> covers. So so for our listeners, go and find it there. And Jess, we can't wait for the second one. Thank you so much. It's so, so lovely to talk to you, Bianca. Hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of Hormone Harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit, feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. 
Today's returning guest is the USA Today and number one nationally best-selling author of Woman on the Edge and the instant number one national bestseller, Watch Out for Her, one of the top 10 best-selling Canadian fiction books of 2022 and also one of the Globe and Mail's top 100 books of 2022. Her novels have been sold in 11 countries to date. She lives in Toronto where she can usually be found tapping away at her computer or curled up on her couch with a book. Her next domestic suspense, A Friend in the Dark, is being published in March. It's my pleasure to welcome Samantha M. Bailey. Sam, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Bianca. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I always, I love your show. I love this show and I love you. So thank you. We love you too. And it's wonderful to have you back. So before we dive into all of that, for our listeners, I'm reading you the flap copy, right? So here we go. A Friend in the Dark. Eden Miller's world is crumbling. Her husband blindsided her with divorce and her daughter barely speaks to her. In an impulsive decision to escape her present and revisit the past, she sends a friend request to her college crush, Justin Ward. One night 23 years ago changed the course of her life. It closed the door on Justin and opened the door to her husband, Dave. But what if Eden could have a do-over? Eden begins an online relationship with Justin that awakens her in ways she never thought possible, and his voice and words make her take bold risks. But something's off. He knows too much about her and her family. He's been following her. Eden is forced to awaken from her fantasy and look for answers. Who really is the man on the other line? The truth about Justin and about what happened that fateful night two decades ago puts her and her family in a fight for their lives. Don't, don't. Done. Right. So, Sam, I want to start off by having a bit of fun. So, this is your third novel. So, can we talk about this misbelief that so many authors have that the more books you write, the easier book writing becomes, and your third and fourth books pretty much just write themselves because it's so easy? Tell us about that. Oh my gosh. This is my seventh book that I've actually written, third that I've had published. My agent, Jenny Bent, who is phenomenal, when I first met her, when she signed me for Woman on the Edge, she said something so profound that has stuck with me to this day. She said, whether it's your first book or your seventh, it never gets easier. It's so true. Every book is hard. The hard thing about that first book is when you want to be published so much. You want, like Eden in my book, you want to be wanted. You want to be wanted. And it's such a long journey for some. For me, it took 20 years before someone wanted to publish one of my books. And so... That's so hard because it's your first experience. Once you have that first experience, and if you're under contract, now you have a deadline and now you have an audience and now you have a publisher and an editor and expectations. And even if there aren't expectations from other people, you have them on yourself. You don't want to disappoint anyone. You want to do better than your last one. You want to stay true to your voice. All of that gets in your head and it can almost paralyze you especially the second book, I will say. The second book everyone says is the hardest because now you have something to live up to, even just inside yourself. So I think it actually gets harder and harder and harder. I don't know if you feel the same. You know, you have three books out, I think, too, right? Yeah, three and I've lost track. <laughs> Not even that many. It's like, yeah, three and an audible original next one coming out. But yeah, I 100% agree with you. And 
The problem also is, is that once you put a book out, readers expect a certain kind of book from you. They're going, oh, this is the kind of book that Sam writes, or this is the kind of book that Bianca writes. And so you want to write something similar enough that it's going to appeal to the same audience, but not so similar that they feel like, oh my God, I've read this book already. You and I were talking just before we started recording about what you were calling popcorn fiction. Can you just give us a bit of an overview of that? Yes, and apologies to everyone listening, watching. I, I have a cold, and so I might be hacking a little bit. Some people describe my books as popcorn thrillers, guilty pleasures, beach reads, lifetime movie-esque. I love it. I love it because that's what I love to read, and that's what I love to watch. The word guilty, I wouldn't say it because no guilt. Enjoy what you enjoy. Love what you love. My goal, ultimately, is to provide an escape and to entertain. I write commercial fiction. I love writing commercial fiction. I love reading commercial fiction. I want people to read my books and escape their lives for a little bit and fall into a world that I've created. That's not to say my books don't have, you know, underlying messages and themes. They do. I work hard to make sure they do. And I want to scare people and I want to make them think and feel. But entertainment is my ultimate goal. Yeah, I absolutely love it. And it's so important that the author, when they sit down to write, knows what they're aiming for. When you've got it very clear in your mind, then that comes across on the page. I think too many emerging authors are like, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing here. Is this literary? Is it a book club? Is it commercial? Which is why we'll get query letters where they'll go, it's literary, but with a commercial appeal. And so instead of targeting their audience, they're trying to appeal to everyone which I think is sometimes a mistake. With this particular book, Sam, were there challenges you faced that you didn't face with the others? I know that there's more sex in this book than the others. Was that easier, harder to write? Was there something specifically about this book that had to challenge you and teach you how to write it? A lot challenged me about this book. I'll start with just a shorter deadline. I wrote the first draft in four months, which I never did before. And I drove myself into the ground to do it. And so that first draft was more of a skeleton draft. I knew it, but I, I didn't have that time that I needed. I personally need some writers can just go and knock out a draft. That's amazing in a short period of time. I need to really think, I need to really plot and plan and rejig and rewrite. So I was very lucky. My developmental editor was incredible and we just tore it apart. So that was fantastic. So I would say just the timing, the pressure of that, I think also made me nervous. And so I couldn't move as fast as I, want, as I wanted to. The sex. All right. So this is interesting and goes back to what you just said about when writers are trying to fit into a genre. Publishing in general, because it's a business, because it's a market, you do need some kind of genre for the categories and the hashtags and to sell it. The problem with that is, not all books fit neatly into one genre. I write thrillers or suspense or psychological thrillers and suspense or domestic. That is what I would really call it is domestic because it deals with relationships and family. To me, that means sex. <laughs> but it's interesting that there are readers who don't want any sex in their thrillers. And that's fine. I love it. Give me all the sex in all, all the books. Because to me, I think it's such, it's a fascinating part of life. It's healthy, it's natural, it makes you feel good. All of those things. What was interesting is when I wrote this is I went for it. I took a big risk and pushed myself outside my comfort zone 
and went for it in just the most intense way possible. So my acquiring senior editor at Thomas and Mercer was fantastic because we had to work together to rein me in a little bit so that it would appeal to a wider audience and not be as no filtered as, as it had begun. <laughs> yeah, 100%. If you're going to push yourself out of your comfort zone, do it properly. Like to me, there's no point in going, okay, I'm going to have this an open door sex book, but then I'm not really going to lean into it. And I also get annoyed with classifications like clean sex or whatever, or clean romance. It's trying to say sex is dirty. And, you know, those distinctions are sort of, they irritate me. But yeah, readers have very strong opinions about the kind of sex they want. And I've seen more and more bookstagrammers who are like, this book wasn't nearly spicy enough. I came to it expecting all the spice and I got none of the spice. And then other people will get the tiniest bit of spice and freak the hell out because the book is just full of nymphomaniacs. So it's always interesting to see how readers respond to that. Can we talk just very briefly about changing publishers? Because something that a lot of emerging authors think is that you sell to one publisher and you stay with that publisher your whole life. And there's this thing in publishing that authors are expected to be loyal to their publishers, but if you don't sell as well for a publisher or whatever, they're very quick to kind of drop you for someone new and shinier. And so my husband has the theory that in banking, you should be changing jobs every five years if you want to stay relevant and if you want to be earning more than if you were just staying in the same job. So I think it's important for authors as well to change publishers as they grow, as their writing changes, as they try and reach a broader audience. Because you had huge success initially in Canada, Sam. And obviously, this was very strategic because you also wanted to have wider success in the US. Was that part of changing your publisher? So <laughs> you nailed it. I want to say my previous publisher, my, my publisher for my first two books, it was an incredible experience. I love them. To this day, I love them. We're in touch. I will support all of their authors and they still continue to support me. It was a beautiful relationship. And I'm so thankful and grateful. It had nothing to do with my publisher for the reasons I changed. It was strategic. My success in Canada was beyond my wildest dreams. Canada is a small market. I have two kids. I fully believe as women, we should be able to be financially independent, whether we have partners or not. And I believe as authors that we should also be able to thrive, not just survive in writing. And it's extremely difficult. Very few writers can write full time. I'm very, very privileged that I do. And it really shouldn't be a privilege. It should just be the standard that we are writers. <laughs> this, we should you know, be able to make enough money to survive and thrive. I don't know if I'll always be able to do that. I kind of take it on a day-by-day -day basis. I know at any moment that I may need to look for another job as well. I can also, I've learned to live on very little. I'm really good at living on a, on a small budget. But I did want to have the exposure to a larger market. And the only way I could do that was with a U.S. publisher. My specific U.S. publisher, they take world rights. So, you know, I, yeah. So there were a lot of decisions, a lot of things to think about. I had to leave my publisher first before you know, accepting anything from another publisher. So I will say I left with no guarantees, with nothing in hand. That I think was one of the biggest risks I've ever taken in my life. And I don't take risks 
like I don't even walk downstairs quickly. I don't drive on highways, <laughs> I'm, you know, but in my professional life, I have to take all the risks because I have been given this chance where anything is possible. I turned 50 in May. I might as well just go for it. And so I did. And <laughs> thankfully it paid off. Yeah. I mean, geez, this book is, we are seeing it hitting all the lists on Amazon. It is wonderful to see it blowing up and having this incredible, incredible success. And yeah, it is a risk. And, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that it's paid off for you. And it's true what you say, like it should be that we earning a living wage as authors, as the rule, not as the exception. We shouldn't have to have so many other backup jobs to allow us to write. And the more we can get to that point, the better for all of us. Right. Right. Now, to discuss the book itself, A Friend in the Dark, a lot of things we say on this show is try and do this, but not this. And the reason we do that is because we see emerging writers make many mistakes when they do X. So we say try and avoid X, rather do Y. So I love it when we see an author who has done X, who has broken the rule, and then I try and unpack for our listeners, okay, if Sam did it, and if she did that well, how did she do it well? What was the intentionality she brought to that so that they can bring it to their own work when they're doing the same thing, right? And I'm always saying you can do anything in writing so long as you're able to defend and substantiate the choices you made and you're able to say this was the way I had to do it because it wouldn't have worked any other way. So I want to focus on a few places where Sam broke the rules, delving into why she did it and the intentionality that she brought to it. So, so much of the story centers around what happens at a party 23 years before the story begins, right? Details of which begin to come out in the first chapter and second chapter as backstory, etc. You begin with a prologue that is a flash forward prologue. So my question here to you is, when it came to that prologue, did you sit and go, should I do a flashback prologue to 23 years before on the night of the party? Why was it more important to do the flash forward prologue and then have the 23 years unpack as backstory in those opening chapters? Such a good question, because it is the very first time I've ever written a prologue. Because we are told... Don't write a prologue. <laughs> Don't write a prologue. And so until this point, I had followed the rules a little more carefully or whatever, you know, the rules that are set up. And with this, I thought, again, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for it because I'm compelled to. And as writers, when we're compelled and then when our characters, it's actually not even me. It is my characters telling me do this. I tell them new. They say, I'm doing it anyway, like teenagers. And so <laughs> I broke the rules in many different ways with this prologue. It wasn't even a thought. I didn't even, everything else I think out, I like 20 page outlined the prologue, though I, you know, tightened it and changed it and added things, just didn't even think, just wrote. It just came out of me. Didn't even occur to me whether it was going to be flash forward, flash back, what would, that was just it. And again, whether it pays off or not is so subjective. That is the experience of the reader. For me, I'm happy that I did it. I don't think there's any rule that we shouldn't break, I guess. When you talk about defending it, I think the problem with defending it is I used to be an editor when I would tell my clients, when I would say something's not working, they would say, oh, but I did it because I said, that's all well and good, but your reader isn't going to be sitting beside you so you can explain why you did something. So it has to be clearer. 
why you did something. You know, and again, that's subjective. Whether or not that comes across to every reader, impossible, majority of readers, I don't know. So I did it. It made sense to me. It made sense to my editors, my critique partners. So I took all of that and I always take, you know, the criticism, the constructive criticisms and, and responses of others who I trust. And then I go for it. Yeah. You know what? It was, I loved the prologue. It flashed forward. It made us curious about what was going to become. It was the kind of thing that what happened in the past was equally interesting. So I feel like Sam could have gone either way, flash forward, flashback. But I 100% agree that the story needed a prologue. I'm so damn happy that you did it, regardless of which one it was. It makes you think, I wonder if anybody's done two prologues, one a flash forward, one a flashback. That would be an interesting discussion for another time. Okay, another thing that we say is generally don't have a character by themselves in the opening pages. If you have them by themselves, they're thinking too much. They, you know, might think about exposition and backstory too much. Have them engaging with other characters. Now you begin with Eden by herself. She is depressed. We can see she's going through something. And it's only quite a few pages in when she decides to message him on Facebook Messenger that we have her starting to interact with somebody. So again, how did you make those opening pages so compelling, so engaging, even though she was just sitting there by herself, pretty much drinking a bottle of Prosecco? Thank you. A lot of rewriting because my other two books were so different. I knew I was doing something really different. And so I can't say I didn't have my audience in mind. I, I, I did. I knew that it would be different. It it wouldn't meet the same expectation in the same way my other books did. But again, I was compelled because I had to tell Eden's story the way Eden's story unfolds. And it unfolds six weeks after her husband of 20 years blindsides her by asking her for a divorce in the parking lot of the dorm where they have just dropped their daughter off for her first year of college. I was like, brutal, man, brutal. <laughs> yes. And I will say, like, I, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for Dave, too. There, there are so many reasons why he did what he did, as horrible and heartless and cruel as it was. But she's so blindsided. And she does, she has two best friends since college, Jenna and Natalie, who are there for her. But Eden has been a good girl. It's my first line is, I'm sick of being, I'm so sick of being the good girl. People please her. She does everything right. For her, how her life looks to other people, how she looks to other people is so important that she's so shaken and so devastated, doesn't know what she's supposed to do, who she is, that all she can think to do is isolate in this little bubble inside her house on her 45th birthday. And there she is. She's 45. She doesn't want to see her friends. She doesn't want to be a burden. She doesn't want people to see how upset she is because that's not her. She's the person people talk to. She's the one who makes everything okay for everyone else or tries to, and everything's not okay. And she can barely admit it to herself. And so she had to be isolated and feel so alone and so lonely and so vulnerable. And that is why this guy who she wanted when she was younger and never had, the one man who made her feel like she wanted to be bold and bad and reckless, the one guy who made her feel dangerous, that's why when she messages him instantly, instantly, she just falls headfirst into her relationship because she doesn't feel as alone. She doesn't feel as isolated, but still, still, she doesn't have to tell anyone in her quote unquote real life what's really happening inside her. 
Yeah. And her sitting alone and drinking alone, all of that adds up to the catalyst as to why she would look him up and do something impetuous like that. So it all adds to the plausibility of her behavior and this inciting incident as it were. Because remember, for our listener, you can say, oh, the inciting incident was however many weeks ago when her husband told her the marriage was over. But you do have to have an inciting incident that is on the page in the here and now. It cannot be something that happened a few weeks ago. So the inciting incident here is when she finds him and she messages him. That answers the why now, why today part of the inciting incident story. I actually think the inciting incident is when Natalie tags her in a Facebook post from college. She's trying to be nice and says to her, look, you look exactly the same as in college. And in that photo is Justin. And she still feels those butterflies seeing this guy all these years later, those same feelings that he gives her. And she's like, hmm. And this actually shows how your inciting incident and your key event can be so close together because the inciting incident is her being tagged. The key event is the point of no return. And that is when she messages him. And those two things happen very, very close together. So once she messages him and he replies, it's like a point of no return for her. So those two come very, very closely together in the story. Last question, because we have a lot of people who work on dual POV novels. Now, from the flap copy of this book, you would think that it was a single POV novel and Eden is the only POV. But as you read, you are introduced to Olivia and we get Olivia's POV. So in terms of the decisions around marketing, why not mention Olivia in the flap copy? Why have the reader only discover Olivia in like, you know, part two or whatever, as they're busy reading? What was the intentionality there? Because it is Eden's story. It is also Olivia's story. But it's hard to say this without describing too much of what I don't want to say. That's part of why. (laughs) So for our listeners, the intentionality here is what I'm getting at. So maybe you're trying to hide something about the other character's POV, and that's why you're not putting it in the flap copy. So I don't want Sam to give away too much, but just if you can frame it in terms of, you know, there there were reasons why we weren't putting that in. It wasn't just an oversight. Yeah, just reasons. (laughs) That's what I should have said. Reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Because remember, sometimes there are things you are hiding from the reader. Sometimes you want the reader to know straight up front, listen, there are going to be two POVs and you're getting them in alternate chapters, etc. So that kind of sets them up for it. But this book, you know, it was interesting. You go into thinking single POV and then suddenly you're like, oh, this is interesting. So maybe in your query letters to agents and stuff, you don't necessarily want to frame it as a dual POV because like Mm -hmm. Sam, there are reasons why you don't want to do that. That's a good point. All right, last question. Last question, Sam, in terms of the backwards and forwards DMs between the two characters, you know, this is an interesting structure in terms of having them communicate with each other. Why did you choose that in the beginning over phone calls, over whatever? Is it that we can lose our inhibitions, etc., when we're texting with somebody as opposed to speaking to them? Why did you set that up as a kind of almost a epistolary form within the novel? Such an interesting question that I'll try to be as succinct as possible. A lot of this novel, just the inspiration for it, was sparked by the isolation of the pandemic. And, you know, how much online communication was going on. And for authors, I think, for me, I developed these extremely intense, deep bonds with 
authors, author friends, so quickly through messages. We had never seen each other face to face. We hadn't heard each other's voices through the phone. And I would think because, you know, we share so much, we share an understanding, the same dreams, the same goals. We were going through the same thing. The bond is so quick. It's shocking how much you will tell each other over a direct message. Like it, it's shocking how much you, you will end up revealing about yourself to people that you don't really even know, but you do know, or you think you know. And yeah, and I mean, that's the, just, I want to uh, disclaimer, none of my author friends are the inspiration specifically for this, but it was that, that through messages, because yeah, there's a sense that you can, you can look how you want to look, you can feel how you want to feel, but what you're, you know, conveying may be so different than what you're actually feeling. All of that. It's a space. It feels safe, sometimes not safe, but it is its own little frightening cocoon. Yeah. And you don't have to look someone in the eye while you're saying these things, right? So it feels much more detached. Yeah. And then technology is the other reason that we're in a world where so much is done through written communication. I actually hate talking on the phone. So I almost never talk on the phone. I do almost everything through text and DM. And I think many, many people do. And so it just seemed natural for them to be doing this over DM. I will say though that my developmental editor kept asking me, what year are you born? Because some of the technology, and I don't have an Apple phone, <laughs> she would be like, uh, okay, so she would have to tweak so many of the technological aspects. I didn't realize how much I didn't know about technology, but now I realize how much I have to learn. <laughs> This is why you need these kinds of editors, people. They help you yeah. with all the things that you don't know. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We wow. look forward to seeing all of your incredible success with this. For our listeners, look out for it. A friend in the dark. So much to unpack there. And yeah, we look forward to having you back for the next one, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. 
But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi everyone, welcome back to another comps session with Emily Summer from East City Bookshop. Emily, welcome back. Thanks, Bianca. I am always happy to be here. And it's post-COVID. You've barely recovered from COVID. And I think you did a lot of these comps while you were sick in bed. So for our listeners, I hope you doubly, doubly appreciate Emily because I know I do. Thank you very much. It was a mild case, so I, I shouldn't get too much sympathy. Mm-hmm. We're still giving it to you. And <laughs> we've got 24 comps to get through today. So that's a hell of a lot. Okay, so here is our first one. Thank you so much for your podcast and for this help. I really appreciate it. I'm writing a memoir. It's told in the first person, present tense, from a child's point of view. It takes place on a commune in a remote area of Oregon, and it's from the ages of about 6 to about 12. For comps, I have Solito by Javier Zamora for the point of view and the child's voice, but I'm trying to find another one that maybe deals with, you know, alternative lifestyle places or even a cult types place. And I'm having trouble finding something. So if you have one for me, I'd love to hear it. I know I can't use the glass castle or educated, um, but I really appreciate your help. Thank you so much. You're hitting on two of my favorite genres here with a commune or a cult and a memoir. I, I love everything about this. And I think that you're right on the money to think of Solito. That is the best memoir I can think of in recent years that is told from a child's perspective. So if anybody out there has not read Solito by Javier Zamora, it is an absolute must read. Thematically, it's quite different. It is about his journey as an unaccompanied minor immigrating from El Salvador into the United States. But absolutely from the child's perspective, I think that is a spot on wreck. I think you're right to avoid the glass castle and educated. So two alternative ideas that I have for you. One, I know I've mentioned it before. It's one of my favorites of the last decade. And it's definitely a book for people who like educated or for whom educated resonates. And that is Hollywood Park by Mikkel Jolay. He is the lead singer of the Airborne Toxic event. If you know that band, I did not before I read the book, but that is really almost a postscript to his story. His story is of being born into a very damaging cult and his extrication from the cult and then other psychological issues that he had as a child with his mother and his growing up very much in the vein of educated. I highly recommend it. And then one other cult slash commune memoir in recent years that I would recommend, and this one also starts out from the child's perspective, is called When the World Didn't End by Guinevere Turner. And I have only read that one. I've read the beginning of it, and it was I was quite taken with it. I think it's very good, but I haven't finished it yet. So those are my recommendations. Thank you, Emily. Here is number two. 
Hi, my name is Brenda, and I'm looking for comp titles. The book I have written is Paranormal Women's Fiction, emphasis on the women's fiction. It's not a scary book. It's more a transformational self-discovery book, and I'm having a little trouble finding comps. Alice Hoffman's Faithful seems to be a pretty good one. Most of the ones that I find are more scary, mystery, you know, vampires and things. And this is a woman who is a medium, discovering that she's a medium. So it's just more hopeful, self-discovery type of a book. And I am hoping you could help me out. Thank you. So I think, again, I think you're spot on with Alice Hoffman. When I think about women's fiction in the vein of paranormal, I think Alice Hoffman is a really good bet. She may be too big, but although I think her heyday has probably passed. So I think just mentioning that it's reminiscent of Alice Hoffman will give people the right idea. And I do think that it will give the idea of sort of a hopeful self-discovery type of book. I like the idea of sort of the gentle magic there. I would also suggest The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches by Sanju Mandana, which is a sort of cozy paranormal And then we've got another comp coming up later in the segment and listen out for that one too, because I'm going to recommend some more magical realism titles that could work here as well. Marvelous. Okay. Here's number three. Hi, I'm writing a memoir about my experiences as a child advocate. I follow one family with four children over seven years. My story deals with my own struggle to affect change where I have no control and learning that showing up was my power. Their story deals with the child welfare system, foster care, adoption, as well as issues of addiction and poverty. Thank you in advance for any direction you can give me. Again, with a memoir, I love it. And it does seem that sometimes these episodes go in themes. So we have a memoir theme happening here. And we're also going to have another comp later in the segment that deals with foster care. So we have some similarities. I love to see the threads. For this one, I have two recommendations. The first is Invisible Child by Andrea Elliott. It is based on her New York Times piece about a homeless child named Dasani. And then Andrea Elliott followed Dasani's story for the next nearly 10 years. That is a book that did very well in our store and had we had a very strong response to it. And it really deals with both Andrea Elliott grappling with what she is able to do for the family and the distance that professionalism requires. And it deals with this family story and it deals with the system that's holding them back. Another foster care memoir that deals with both the larger issues and a personal story is To the End of June by Chris Beams. So those are the two that I would suggest. Thank you. Here's number four. Hi there. My name is Daphne Gordon. I'm a nonfiction author and I'm writing a book called, at the moment it's called, Not a Hallucination, A Regular Person's Guide to the Psychedelic Renaissance. And it's designed to create an intergenerational conversation about the changes that are coming as psychedelics and other drugs are decriminalized and brought out of the closet into communities. I would love to know your comp recommendations. I have some, but I would love to know your expert input on comp titles for a book about psychedelics for the family. Okay, so Daphne, you said you've got some ideas, and I'm sure one of them is How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. I think anytime you mention psychedelics or microdosing or a book of this nature, people are going to think about Michael Pollan. So I'm sure that one is on your radar. The other one that I will put on your radar, and it is a little, I think it's from 2017 or 2018, and it's 
called A Really Good Day by Ayelet Waldman. She is a novelist as well. This is nonfiction. She's married to Michael Shabon, and she had a big dust up on Oprah probably 10 or 15 years ago when she said that she loved her husband more than her children. I don't know if anybody is old enough to remember that. She's a very good writer, and A Really Good Day is a book about her very positive experiences with microdosing. So I think that could be on point. And then there are a lot of books in the self-help, mind, body, spirit realm about psychedelics, about the decriminalization. And I don't know if any of them will strike exactly the right tone. One I'll mention is the Psilocybin Handbook by Jennifer Cheesack. But I think if you search microdosing and psychedelics, you'll find other things and you can see what fits the most. I remember that, Oprah, so I'm giving away my H yet. Okay, number five. Hi, reading extraordinaires. I need help finding comps for my contemporary upmarket fiction novel. It's a story within a story where the majority of the novel is a fake first lady memoir, and the other portion is her former president husband reading the memoir in 2030. The memoir focuses on how their relationship came to be and the internal struggle the wife had between choosing the life she built for herself or the life she could have with him. The Parts in 2030 focuses on the breakdown in communication and how their marriage is in crisis. My current comps are Before I Let Go by Kennedy Ryan, Us by David Nichols, and Becoming by Michelle Obama, but only one of those has been published in recent years. My problem is that it's not a romance because it doesn't have a happy ending, it's not women's fiction because there's too much of his point of view, and while books about first ladies are always popular, it's not historical fiction or a real memoir. There are epistolary elements, political and social commentary, but it's not highbrow enough to be lit fic. Please help. Okay, I love that you mentioned David Nichols because I'm in a David Nichols mood because I just watched One Day on Netflix. That's what I did while I had COVID. I watched the entirety of the new Netflix series, which I highly recommend, not as a comp here, but just in general, the Netflix series is outstanding. So read the book and watch the show. It's wonderful. I would suggest American Wife by Curtis Sittenfeld. So if that one is not on your radar, before Curtis Sittenfeld wrote Rodham, an imagined retelling of Hillary Clinton, she wrote a book called American Wife. It's a little old for the purposes that we have here, but I think it is a really good comp. And it was loosely based on Laura Bush. It really humanizes both of the Bushes. It takes their story and then jumps off. So it's not them. The characters are not them. But it is definitely a first lady, a fictional first lady. Her husband is also an important character. It talks about their marriage. And I think that it would strike that right balance between like contemporary upmarket, literary, but not super interior literary. And I also thought of a book that you don't want to use as a comp because it's way too old, but a pair of books, Mrs. Bridge and Mr. Bridge by Evan Connell. I don't know if anyone is familiar with those. I think it's from the late 50s or the early 60s, but one book is from the perspective of the wife and one is from the perspective of the husband. So just a shout out to an old classic there. Amazing. Okay, number six. Hi, Bianca, Cece, and Carly. Thank you for all your wonderful advice. Today, I'm looking for comp titles. My novel is the story of a young woman working in a tech startup in San Francisco. The company is developing augmented reality headsets that plug directly into your brain. Her male colleagues are laser-focused on delivering the product on time, and they ignore the psychological side effects that it causes. At first, the main character tries to help them, but eventually she also succumbs to the psychological dangers of the virtual reality tech. One theme in the novel is the role of women in the workplace. The relevant title I found is The Startup Wife, where the female company co-founder similarly sees problems with their nascent technology. I've also come to view my book as a girl version of Fight Club, 
but that book is over 25 years old by now. Like the narrator in Fight Club, our main character is losing her grip on reality, and a dark plot twist awaits her at the end. Thank you for your help. The startup wife. Absolutely. That's the first thing I thought of when I hear about a novel about a woman working in tech. So I think you're absolutely on the right track there. I think you're right that Fight Club is probably too old. And I think it strikes me as so very male that I think almost characterizing it as like a female version of it doesn't quite work. There are two memoirs that I think, even though we're talking about a novel, I think two memoirs would work as meaningful comps. The first is Uncanny Valley by Anna Wiener. And the second is called Brotopia by Emily Chang. And both of those books are about women working in tech and the very male industries that they're working up against and the dangers that big tech can bring. So I think the combo of one of those memoirs plus the startup wife, I think that's a really good comp. Brotopia. Wow, that's an excellent title. It's good, right? So good. Okay, number seven. Hi. I'm seeking comp titles for my contemporary YA dual protagonist novel titled Sudden Sisters. In the story, a devastating event strands eight teens in the wilderness, forcing one of them to discover an inner strength so intense that it transforms both her and her nemesis into powerful young women. This work invokes themes of redemption, finding agency, and healing through deep connection with another. It weaves an enemies-to-friends spine through tense survival adventure, blending character arcs similar to those in Anne Valet's clickbait with the forced proximity of Dana Mele's People Like Us. These are my best comps so far. Can you think of any better ones? Thanks so much for this help. It's really great for all of us to be able to get access to it. Okay, so I love the idea of like a survival story. I think that YA could use more sort of wilderness survival action in that space. And one that I thought of right away is called Five Survive by Holly Jackson. She wrote the very popular Good Girl's Guide to Murder series. We have a lot of teens in the store. We call them affectionately our murder teens because they love murder mystery books but we mean that with great love. My own 15-year-old is one of those murder teens. Big fan of Holly Jackson. But Five Survive is more of a survival tale than a straight-up whodunit. It's definitely like teens in peril out in the woods. So I would look at that one. And then another favorite of ours is The Agathas by Kathleen Glasgow and Liz Lawson. And the reason I thought of that one is because that one has a pair of main characters who are sort of unlikely friends, unlikely partners, and they do find connection with each other. They do help solve their mystery, and it might capture a little bit of that enemies to friends vibe. Thank you. Here's number eight. Hi, this is a comp question. I'm writing literary fiction where one of the lead characters is a senatorial chief of staff, and half the action of the book takes place where she is managing her boss's D.C. office and re-election campaign. I'm looking for a comp that speaks to that world of Washington politics and political intrigue, but that isn't red, white, and royal blue, which is much more of a romance, or something like Charlotte Walsh likes to win, which feels much more commercial. The tone that I'm going for is a bit more House of Cards, but that show is a bit old at this point and has a lot of its own baggage. The book that I've read that feels closest to what I'm doing is Kathleen Rooney's 2014 book, Oh Democracy, but I'd love something that feels a little bit more recent. Thank you so much for your help. Okay, so I am 
tuning in from DC. So I'm very interested in anything with a DC or political angle, something more recent than Oh Democracy, or at least I think it's more recent with a more house of cards tone is a book by Jessica Anthony called Enter the Aardvark that captures the sort of I don't know if acerbic is the right word, but it's got that house of cards feel much more, you know, not a romance like red, white, and royal blue. It's not as upbeat as Charlotte Walsh likes to win. So I would look at Enter the Aardvark. And then something else that I think captures that political spirit, even though it is not strictly a DC or politics book, is this sequel to Election that just came out a couple of years ago from Tom Parada, who is wonderful, and it's called Tracy Flick Can't Win. And if you remember Election, the main character, Tracy Flick, was in high school in Election. Well, in Tracy Flick Can't Win, she is now an educator, but it's still very much she's trying to get what she's owed, and there are political machinations. So I think you should look at that one, too. It might, it might have the right vibe and spirit. Thank you. I always get the giggles when I hear North Americans say aardvark because <laughs> as South Africans and I think any of our Dutch listeners will know, it's aardvark, but it's always, it's like the antwoord. <laughs> now we know. Yeah, now we know, but you still won't be able to pronounce it. <laughs> we do our best. We do our best. <laughs> okay, here's number nine. Hi, my name is Jennifer Loudon. I'm writing a contemporary fantasy, a magic school where middle-aged women learn to use magic to buy humanity time from the climate crisis. I'm struggling to find comp titles. I have had a long career as a personal growth author, so I know that world really well. And I do love fantasy, of course, and read extensively, but my fantasy sort of fits into not the cozy fantasy world at all. Obviously, Harry Potter isn't a comp title because most of the magic school books are for teenagers, YA. This is definitely an adult contemporary fantasy. Yeah, so there's not high elements, there's not it's not high fantasy, there's no trolls. <laughs> the best comp title I have right now, which is really great, is When Women Were Dragons by Kelly Barnhill. It is a set in the 1950s, so more historical, and mine is a contemporary fantasy, but it has the feminist elements, magic erupting, things like that. So I'd love to find some other comp titles. Thanks so much. I love the podcast. Okay, so here is the magical realism book that I mentioned. And I would look at, again, this one might be one where a very secret society of irregular witches works. And there is also a book that just came out today by Melissa Mara called Remedial Magic. And it is about a like grown up community college for magic that might work because we're talking about middle aged women. I obviously you, I don't know if Bianca's Witches of Moonshine Manor is a comp, but you obviously need to buy it and read it. If you have not already, surely we all have. It is what we owe our wonderful podcast host and organizer. But because this caller mentioned Kelly Barnhill and When Women Were Dragons, I, I was trying to look for some other sort of literary fiction, magical realism titles. I would look at the new book by Kelly Link, The Book of Love, which just came out either last week or this week. It's brand new. And I would look at maybe Sarah Addison Allen. And that one might fit that initial book that we talked about just a couple of calls ago. So I would look at those for the fantasy of this type as well. Thank you, Emily. Here's the next one. 
Hi, my name is Jen. I'm looking for comp titles for my dual timeline single point of view novel. It's a suspense psychological thriller written as upmarket or book club fiction set in the Canadian prairies. The main character, Harriet Waters, lives in the woods across from the street from a maximum security prison. When an inmate escapes, her world begins to implode as he is connected to a past murder in her family. As police continue to search for the missing inmate, she's convinced she's being hunted. A series of trespassing, van chases, and break-ins occur in the small town, and Harriet slips into a world of fear, pushing her to revisit the events of the past that led up to the murder. She discovers that things weren't exactly as she remembered as a child, and there is more behind the small town's terror. Okay, so two that I thought of immediately here, and it's because of our setting in the Canadian prairie, and because it does seem like such a tense, suspenseful, hunted type situation. The first is The Marsh King's Daughter by Karen Dion, and that's a book from maybe 2016 or 2017, but it's had a new re-release because they made a movie out of it. So it is, I think it's still very much selling and like in the mind because the movie just came out last year, I believe. It had, I think it had Daisy Edgar Jones in it, if I'm not mistaken. But that is a book that is set in the upper peninsula of Michigan and the landscape really plays a part. So you feel like, oh, you're out, like you're out in the upper peninsula and the setting is really important. Likewise, with These Silent Woods by Kimmy Cunningham Grant, she's got a new book coming out this spring, but These Silent Woods is a survivalist tale. A father and daughter are living off the grid and feel like they may be hunted. And of course, there are things in their past that come to light as well that you find out over the course of the novel. I think both of those might might work here. Thank you. Yeah, that was with Daisy Ridley. Daisy Ridley. That's right. Not Daisy Edgar Jones. She's in the, the other girl out in the marsh <laughs> maybe i do have COVID, lingering covid brain where the product thing where the product thing that's that one with daisy the other daisy someone needs to write the daisies in the marsh that's that's the book I <laughs> that's want right to. we do a double feature we do a double feature of these out in the marsh okay number 11 hello i'm seeking comps for my multi-pov literary fiction novel everything trivial everything intimate is a quiet, introspective novel that deals with the character's internal emotional conflict with a tone owing a debt to Virginia Woolf. It's a contemporary story about JC and Molly, two late 20-somethings who are lifelong best friends, exes, and occasional lovers. And after their most recent night together, they don't have the chance to sort out what it may or may not mean before they are pulled into drama with other friends. Eventually, they drift apart, each finding new romantic relationships that don't last, and they must eventually find a way to mend their relationship while dealing with a mother's sickness and the fallout from a friend's incarceration. It is set in a fictionalized version of Ottawa, Canada, and the city and the characters' ties to it are a significant component of the novel. I'm scrambling for appropriate comps. I'm considering Ethan Joella's A Little Hope due to its style and focus on community, and I've also thought of Marina Endicott's Good to a Fault and John Banville's The Sea, though I don't think either is quite right. Any suggestions would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. I love Ethan Joella, so I really appreciate the mention of Ethan Joella's A Little Hope. I think that one is right on the money. I think he's wonderful. A book that I recommend to people who like Ethan Joella that I think could work here too because it is very quiet, very introspective, and a book about relationships is Mary Lawson's A Town Called Solace. It's also Canadian, so we've got a bonus there since our caller is setting the book in Ottawa, a fictionalized Ottawa. And then finally, I will recommend one of my favorite books of 2023, Talking at Night by Claire Daverly, which is best friends, maybe more 
drifting apart, being drawn together, have new relationships. That is very much the course of talking at night. So thematically it could work, but again, it's, it's very intimate, very quiet, and the tone might fit as well. Thank you. Okay. Here is number 12 and we at the halfway mark. My novel is a mystery slash romantic suspense titled What Happened at the Mansion. The setting is a mansion in California where a well-known reality dating show is filmed. All these women are competing to date Preston, who's a rich doctor who's hiding a dark past. The hook is that the front runner is found dead, murdered on set during the middle of the season. The cops rule out foul play, but the protagonist, producer Myra, is not so sure. The network says they have to keep filming, the show must go on, and Myra's boss tells her she's forbidden from investigating. Myra and the lead, The Bachelor, Preston secretly agree to work together to find out who done it. It's told in dual POV with Myra and Preston. My comps right now are Finley Donovan is killing it for its light, pacey mystery, One to Watch, which is another novel with a POV character who's the lead on a dating show, Big Summer, which has a similarly structured mystery but does not match on other elements. I also like The Chicken Sisters because it shows the chaos that reality TV brings to real life, but that one is neither mystery nor romance. Okay, Finley Donovan meets one to watch. Done. You do not need me. That is, that's perfect. I hear Finley Donovan meets one to watch, and I, I think you're couldn't do better than that. I couldn't, I couldn't come up with anything more apropos. You're training our listeners how to do their comps, Emily. This is amazing. They're very smart. They're very smart, quick learners. Okay, here's number thirteen. I'm completely stuck for comps. I'm even thinking of querying without them. The main character is a young man who can't recognize love. He doesn't feel unworthy as his self-esteem is intact. He does want to be loved, and he himself can feel love. He just can't believe anyone who says they're interested. To explain his own behavior, he creates someone to blame, an articulate and persuasive inner voice feeding him reasons to be vigilant, as the psychologists say. Trouble is, the voice acquires a life and personality of its own. After the main character gets to know Jenny, he no longer wants to feel distrustful. He tries to erase the skeptical inner voice, but by now it's too late, and the voice fights back. The book has a rather British feel, as if it can't take itself too seriously. And ideally, this tone would also be found in a comp. I'd really appreciate any suggestions, as I have not the slightest idea what to do. Okay, so I have kind of a weird suggestion here, and it's because of that last comment that it has like a British feel and can't take itself too seriously. So my gut is that this is a very like voicey, very distinct narrator. And because of that, and because it's a main character who's dealing with this inner voice and sort of battling with himself, I want to suggest the book by Simon Stevenson called Set My Heart to Five. And the main character in that book is a literal robot. And if you've listened to me, you know that like robots are not my jam. I am very much like I want quiet, sad humans in the real world in all of my books. But Set My Heart to Five is delightful. The character is really like struggling with his own, like learning emotions and figuring things out. But it's very funny. It's set in the United States, I think, but it's it's got a real like British sensibility. I think Simon Stevenson might be British. There's another book coming out soon called Brat by Gabriel Smith, which everything I've heard about that suggests that it also may fit, although it might be too it's possible it's too dark or, or snarky. I can't really tell. It may have more of like a Confederacy of Dunces vibe to it than what we're looking at here. I think Confederacy of Dunces is too old regardless. And then I'm also trying to think of things that are Eleanor Oliphant-like because I feel like that book may be too big to comp, but it captures the spirit of trying to love and make connections despite 
the ways that we sabotage ourselves. And a book that I read recently that fits that criteria is All the Little Bird Hearts by Victoria Lloyd Barlow, which is absolutely wonderful. And I highly recommend it. So maybe one of those will work. I think what you've just said earlier is going to make the most excellent title for a book. And one of our listeners, grab it and run with it, is Quiet Sad Humans in the Real World. <laughs> That's what I want. I just, I, I like happy people too, but. If the book's yeah. titled that, Emily's picking it up. Okay. That's all I need. I don't need a plot. <laughs> I, just need, I just need people thinking about their life. Amazing. Here's number 14. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. My name is Jennifer, and I am requesting comps for my contemporary women's fiction work in progress, currently titled Hope Can Kill. Hope Shepard, a therapist for women who are victims of interpersonal violence, is in a Michigan prison for killing five husbands of clients whose lives were in immediate danger. The story follows Hope as she wrestles with her savior complex and learns that being the hero comes with grave consequences. Hope Can Kill is emotionally intense with thriller elements. Think the initial climb of the tallest roller coaster you've ever been on, and you're riding it at night. You tick along, knowing your heart will be in your throat in seconds, but you don't see it coming. Thank you for your consideration of my comp request for Hope Can Kill. All right, Hope Can Kill. So I have to admit, I would love more information about this one, just because I know that Hope is in prison already. So I'm just trying, I'm struggling with like what the conflict within the book is since she's already committed these crimes and is, is in prison. But I'm trying to think of things where it's a complicated main character who has perhaps done some questionable things, maybe for the right reasons, it sounds like, who are we to say? And emotionally intense and dark as this is described. So the first thing I'll suggest is Never Saw Me Coming by Vera Curian. And that is not a book where someone is so invested in bettering her clients or patients' lives that she is protecting them. In fact, our character in Never Saw Me Coming is a diagnosed sociopath, but she's very sympathetic in a lot of ways, or certainly she's very fun to read if she's not entirely sympathetic. It's just a very unusual and dark hook for a book. I loved it. It's set here in DC and Vera Curian really gets DC right. Her next book comes out today. So check that one out as well. But I think it might have the like intensity and darkness and like moral questions that would work for Hope Can Kill. The next one I'll suggest is Razorblade Tears by S.A. Cosby, because that is another book. I mean, S.A. Cosby is just so good. But this is a book that is really about sort of vigilanteism and revenge. So that could work here. And then finally, I'll suggest Manhunt by Gretchen Felker Martin, which may be too sort of beyond the pale horror, but is also got that sort of revenge, setting things right, taking back our power vibe that could work. Thank you. Here is number 15. Hi, ladies. I'm seeking comps from a multi-POV novel, Church Ladies. Secrets, we all have them, especially the church ladies who sat in the pews of St. Mary's Church for years but have never shared their secrets with each other. Sadie's in a sexless marriage. Holly's husband is in treatment for sex addiction. Maria, her reproductive years behind her, hides a secret teenage marriage. And Tish, a closet-organizing kleptomaniac, has forgotten why she steals. Finally, Augusta, the resident artist who crafts intricate sculptures of her beloved church ladies, longs for a mother unlike her own. 
but when the Reverend Jasper Masterson comes to town, his presence sends the church ladies into a summer of restless questioning about the nature of love, marriage, spirituality, and sex. Thanks for your help. Love the show. So for this one, the one I have to recommend, I don't actually think it's a comp, but when you hear the title, you'll understand. And it's The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Deisha Filia. So that's actually a short story collection. It's by a Black author, and the stories are very grounded in a Black woman's experience. It is outstanding. It was from, I think, West Virginia University Press, and it was not a book that was on my radar until it was shortlisted for the National Book Award. But when you're talking about, as we are here, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, I got to recommend the book called The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, which is truly one of the best short story collections I have read probably ever. This one feels a little more... um, certainly sounds more like a novel and it sounds more like, I don't know, like a small town secrets. I would look at maybe somebody like Debbie McCumber or Kristen Harmel or like women's fiction authors who will tell like the interior stories of women. I don't think it necessarily has to have the church angle, but it might have sort of grown up women figuring things out and coming into their own. So that's why I would suggest authors like that. Anything that Ballantyne publishes, I feel like could have that vibe. So I would look, I would look at Valentine's list. Yeah. Disha was incredible. And I got to interview her for the podcast as well. Loved that collection and loved her as well. It just blew me away. I just could not believe how every single one of those stories was an absolute banger. And the book is so tiny. No, right. Just can't recommend it more highly. Yeah. Okay. Here's number 16. Thanks, ladies, for all you do. I'm Lori Crispo, looking for comps for my debut women's fiction novel, Marcy Makes Mistakes, set in 1980s New York art world. It combines a love triangle of Bridget Jones' diary, 80s art world of Rebecca Mackay's Great Believers, and restaurant setting of Stephanie Dandler's Sweet Bitter. Marcy always dreamed of opening an art gallery in New York City. At 27, she's on track with a perfect job at Sewell's Auctioneers and perfect affair with Russell, her boss. When that affair is uncovered, Marcy loses her dream job and dream boat all at once. To afford to stay in New York, she works in a restaurant and attempts art consulting on the side. Jake, the chef's best friend, falls hard for Marcy. Thinking he supports her dreams, she accepts his proposal, but a tragedy days before the wedding leaves Marcy betrayed alone and defeated. Only after she doubles down on her dreams and opens herself to love that doesn't check the boxes can Marcy realize her goals in ways she never imagined. Emily, my concern is Bridget Jones and Sweet Bitter may be too old and The Great Believers is too literary. Hope you can help. Thanks. Hi, Lori. I love all of the books that you have mentioned. So I'm very excited for this one to see the light of day. I do agree with you that Bridget Jones's diary is probably a little bit too big, too old. I will believe you if you say Great Believers is too literary. And I will suggest instead, I would mention for the art and the 1980s piece of it, Molly Prentice's book, Tuesday Nights in 1980, which is an outstanding book about the art world in New York City in the early 80s. She has a book called Old Flame that just came out last year that is also very good. I think she's excellent. But Tuesday Nights in 1980 is just, it's it's my go-to art world book recommendation. I also like Sweet Bitter, and I don't think it's too, too old or too big, but our agents and experts might disagree. But in the vein of Sweet Bitter, I will recommend one of my all-time favorites, Writers and Lovers by Lily King, because that is a book about a woman at a career crossroads who is working in a restaurant and trying to figure out love while she pursues her creative 
dreams that she really wants to do. But it's and it's just so wonderful. I will also suggest along the vein of Sweet Bitter and Writers and Lovers, a book that is coming out this spring from Riverhead, which is called Lo-Fi by Liz Riggs. I don't know if it'll be a comp here, but it's so good. And I describe it as Sweet Bitter set in the world of a music venue as opposed to a restaurant. So it's set in like 2010s Nashville in a club. And if you are a a music lover, it's a great one. It's very Nick Hornby-esque. So I I suggest that one only because it's such a great read. I want it to be on everybody's radar when it comes out in a couple of months. Yeah, we're evangelical about Lily King on the podcast. I also got to interview her about writers and lovers. So for our listeners, if you've missed that one, go back Go back into the archives and find it. She was just incredible. She's just so good. She's so good. That might be one of the books that I hand sell the most in the store because I think I can hand it to almost anybody. Yeah. Okay. Number 17. Kia ora from Aotearoa, New Zealand. I need help finding recent comps for my adult fantasy novel. It probably sits best along alternate history as it has a noir pre-war 1930s setting, but it's not really historical. The fantasy elements are light, but the protagonist has the ability to read memories, and the city is ruled by a genetically superior upper class. There are no witches, monsters, or gods. And this is written in third-person close POV rather than first, so I'm really struggling. Closest I've come to finding a comp is Siren Queen by Nebo, which I really love, but there's no blood magic or silver screen in my manuscript. Instead, my MC spends a lot of time outside the city's walls trying to find answers to her mother's violent death. Underlying themes are of perceived freedoms, lies and propaganda, and our willingness to trust our own memories, even when we know they are inherently flawed. Help. I love your work. Thank you for everything you do. I really like the rec for Siren Queen here. I think that that works. And I will suggest maybe Babel by R.L. Kuang, maybe too big, but I think it could work in the sort of alternate history, historical adult fantasy vein. So I would look at Babel and then I would just read all of the blurbs, everybody who blurbs R.L. Kuang and see if anything else can supplement the Siren Queen and Babel suggestions. Excellent suggestion there. Okay, number 18. Hi there. I'm looking for comps for my upper middle grade sports-based book. Elliot is a competitive U13 baseball player, but his season goes awry when his mom leaves for an eight-month freelance gig overseas. His dad and coach has trouble coping with her absence, and the season becomes even more complicated when a AAA coach starts scouting kids for mid-season tryouts. Elliot's summer goes from bad to worse when his mom becomes gravely ill, and his dad must fly overseas to help her during the middle of playoffs. This book is intended to be the first in a three-part series, with each book focusing on a different kid in the friend group and their sport. For a sports-based series, the best comps I can come up with are a bit dated, such as the Matt Christopher Sports Classics, or skew more YA such as those by Mike Lupica. Fast Pitch by Nick Stone is the same age group but has more of an adventure feel to it and doesn't capture the group of friends and the dynamics between them. I appreciate any help you can provide. Thank you. I didn't have to go to any of my coworkers for this one, but usually I have to ask for outside expertise on the middle grade, but I think we need more sports-based middle grade. I know that my 11-year-old, this is this is what he would want. I will suggest the track series by Jason Reynolds. So that is also a series that is about a group of friends and each book is about a different person. It is sports-based and Jason Reynolds is just as good as they get. And I'll also suggest The Hurricanes of Weakerville by Chris Wylander because that is the middle grade baseball book and friendship book that I have been recommending the most in the last couple of years. Thank you. Here's number 19. 
Hi, I'm looking for comps for my YA psychological thriller. 16-year-old Mika Langua has finally found the problem-free, independent life she wanted, and she only had to go halfway around the world to find it. But her year-long exchange to Switzerland is disrupted when her parents go missing. When she arrives home, she finds out they've simply taken a vacation of their own. The detectives drop the case, and everyone from the Thai exchange student staying in her home to family and friends are convinced that it was all just a miscommunication. But things aren't adding up. Will Mika stick around to find out what's really going on? Or will she go straight back to the safe, easy life she was living in Switzerland? It's single POV, straightforward chronological narrative with um, backstory told through text between characters that's interspersed. I've found Sherry Lapina's Everyone Here is Lying to be the closest comp, but it's obviously for adults. And I'm having trouble finding YA where uh, parents go missing, they're not necessarily murdered, and it's just single POV. Appreciate all your help. Thanks for all you do. I love the idea that we've got somebody who and her parents are missing and she's got to find them. I cannot think of a comp where the parents go missing. It is entirely possible that a YA reader or YA writer or listener can chime in and leave a comment on the the Instagram page with very specific on point recommendations. I would just look at some of the best YA psychological thrillers out there. And there are so many. I mentioned Holly Jackson earlier. I would look at Holly Jackson, depending on how dark this is and how scary or how suspenseful. I love Courtney Summers. So I would look at Courtney Summers. I would look at Kit Frick. And I think any of those, whatever fits the best tone, those are all have sort of a missing person's coming of age element to it and you'll be able to see what feels the most correct thank you emily number 20 i'm looking for a comp for my ya novel which is a portal fantasy a teenage boy in present-day arizona eager to please his narcissistic mother but harsh towards his adoring girlfriend must fall into the worlds of the fiction classics he's reading for school in each world he learns something about himself his past his girlfriend and his mother that will help him heal and come of age I have no cops at all. The best I could think of was a cross between Midnight Library, because books are the portal, and Song of Achilles, because it's a retelling of a classic. Thank you so much. Okay, so for this one, I love the mention of the Midnight Library, and I would cross it with not Song of Achilles, because I think Song of Achilles conjures a real like mythological bend to it. I mean, I think that we would expect like a more straightforward mythological retelling, but I love the idea of mentioning the midnight library. So we get this portal aspect of the book with a young adult coming of age that is going to capture our main characters pull between his mother, his girlfriend and his figuring things out. So I would look at a book maybe like Darius the Great is Not Okay by Adib Karam, just because that is a really strong like male-centric YA coming of age, very well written, that'll deal with themes of like family struggle and figuring out your place in your family and your friends. So I think that the, the two of those together could work. Wonderful. Okay, number 21. I've written a memoir about abuse, like Jen Waits, A Beautiful, Terrible Thing, but somewhat literary, like Maggie Smith's We Could Make This Place Beautiful, and a hint of The Shack, where an unorthodox Jesus appears. For 25 years, I refused to recognize red flags in my husband, a pastor, because I'm stuck in the fantasy we created when we met. When Jesus gives me a vision to separate, Craig yells, lies, cancels my credit cards, and tells everyone I'm mentally unstable. Jesus says to return, but proximity to Craig sucks me right back into the fantasy. He renews contact with a teen he's given roses, money, and leather jacket, and I report him to the church. Before I can divorce, Jesus trains me to think independently from Craig. 
to heal my perfectionism, approval addiction, and fears, and then I sever the bond as a strong and free woman. Thank you so much for all your work helping us with comps. Another one where you're doing my job for me. I think Jen Waits, A Beautiful, Terrible Thing meets You Could Make This Place Beautiful. I think that's excellent. That tells me exactly the kind of marriage memoir that I'm going to get and I would buy it. I bought both of those. I do think that it sounds like the Christian aspect here is so strong that I would want to mention that. Depending on where your faith journey is throughout the book, you might look at some of the books that are out there and I've seen them referred to as like exvangelicals memoirs. In fact, there's a book out there called The Exvangelicals. I don't know if those would fit. There's a book called Testimony by John Ward, who actually is a neighbor and customer and friend of East City Bookshop. And John's memoir is not marriage related, but it is a book about realizing that the faith that you are in is at odds with the faith that you still have. He is still very much a believer and grew up in a church and is sort of struggling with where it is now. But the combination of the marriage memoirs plus testimony by John Ward or the exvangelicals might give the spiritual, the Christian piece to give a full picture of the manuscript. Wonderful. Okay. Number 22. Hello. I love your podcast so much. I am looking for comp titles for my lesbian rom-com set in New York City in 2010 in the cutthroat world of magazines. Ella gets a job at a best-selling women's magazine that writes endlessly about how to please a man. Along the way, she falls in love with her coworker, an out-and-proud lesbian who causes her to question everything she thought she knew about sex and romance. As their relationship deepens, her lover enlists Ella as a co-conspirator in a plot to expose the magazine's toxic, not-so-feminist underbelly. But as Ella learns to fit in at the magazine, she faces a choice, openly embrace the woman she loves or risk the career she's worked so hard for. This is basically a gay devil wears Prada with elements of mean girls, but I know those comps are too old and I would love, love your help. Thank you so much. Okay. I am here for the gay devil wears Prada. I don't think you need to say anything else, but I love this pitch. I love the idea of this woman falling for her female coworker at a women's magazine. I mean, I grew up reading all of the magazines. I still do. I still, I wish I had my old sassy magazines from when I was younger. I would look at the books by Amy Spaulding, who writes really great sapphic rom-coms. And they have a little bit of the like Hollywood or media hipness that I think this one probably has. I would look at the books by Camille Perry, which I think also are going to capture sort of like a New York. And this is, I will say, this is the first comp query that I've heard where I've thought like, oh, I feel like I know which editors would like this. I think this sounds like a book for Emma Caruso or Katie Nishimoto at the Dial Press. And I only say that I am not an agent. As we know, I am just a bookseller, but I am a fan of the Dial Press. I am a big fan of Emma and Katie, and I could just see this on either one of their lists. So good luck with it. Wow. Emily has done all your work for you here. This is like, all she has to do is tell you which agent to go with. I don't want to put anybody on the spot. Listen, maybe that is the worst thing I could do, but I just feel like they both published these really great, very of the moment rom-coms. And I, I just, I could see it. I could see it. All right. Here is our second last one. We Are One is a 96,000 word speculative novel that focuses on women struggling against a totalitarian regime in order to protect children as found in Women Talking and oppressive reproductive control as found in The Handmaid's Tale. Nana, 75, is a soldier living on an island of black women called Mir. Procreation is achieved by cloning or kidnapping. 
After retirement, Nana becomes a caregiver for clones. As a devoted mother, she watches the children suffer through the brutal training that she experienced and sees it with new eyes. The tension of the novel builds as the trial of Seven's approaches, which requires that clones fight to the death. If Nana chooses to forsake the military, which has been her family for the past two decades, she will be hunted and killed. If she remains in Mir, one of her children will die. The central theme of this book is motherhood as well as found family and complicated female relationships. The Handmaid's Tale is too big. Can you help me? Okay. I, women talking, Miriam Taves is my, she is an auto buy for me. I think nobody is writing better than Miriam Taves. So I love that you mentioned women talking, although this might be more speculative than that. So I'm not sure I would actually use it as a comp. I would use The Power by Naomi Alderman. She's got a more recent one too that might fit. I would look at The Farm by Joanne Ramos I mentioned Helen Phillips on here a lot. So I would look at Helen Phillips. She's got a forthcoming book called Hum that is about AI. And finally, I would also look at Nane Ajay Brenya's Chain Gang All-Stars, which has the sort of Hunger Games fight to the death aspect. Nane Ajay Brenya is, is male, but two of the main characters in the book are female. And they're, they have these complicated female relationships, but it's very much found family. That one is really looking at like our carceral state and how terrible and frightening it is and inhumane. But I think, I think it could work as well. Thank you, Emily. And now we're at the last one. You've done it. Here we go. I'm seeking comps for my dual POV contemporary book club novel that follows a young single mother in New Orleans whose life turns upside down when her baby is placed in foster care after she takes him to the ER for a physical injury. We simultaneously follow a lawyer in her 40s who's reeling from her husband's recent suicide and returns home to New Orleans where she takes a child welfare job representing foster children. When the lawyer is appointed by the court to represent the young mother's baby, the two women's lives intersect on a shared journey as they each struggle to navigate a flawed system of justice with the support of unlikely friendships they cultivate along the way. I've spent the last decade representing foster children myself and was inspired to write this story after reading Diane Chamberlain's Necessary Lies and Jodi Pico's Small Great Things. I also adore the way Ian McEwen writes about the complexities of the legal definition of a child's best interest in the Children Act. I would love to find recent comps that might capture the heartbreaking but also heartwarming stories and voices of my characters as well as the legal, cultural, and political implications of our post-Katrina, post-Rose society. Yes, we did it. And we didn't even take that much longer than usual. So thank you for bearing with me as I sped through all of these. So for another book about foster family, the first thing I thought of is a book by Jen Phillips called Family Law, which came out just a couple of years ago. I am a huge fan of Jen Phillips's psychological thriller called Fierce Kingdom, which I would not use as a comp here. It doesn't have anything to do with it. Family Law is the one, but you should look at Fierce Kingdom also because it is just so good. That one's a novel. Earlier, I mentioned some foster care memoirs, which could work as well. I would also, I think you got to mention The School for Good Mothers by Jasmine Chan. That one, when I hear like a woman has gotten in trouble and is having legal parental struggles. I think of the school for good mothers and it certainly did very well. So it would be a, an eye-catching comp, I think. And then there's one nonfiction book that I did not mention in our previous call, but I think could work really for either, even if it's just his background reading. And it's called, we were once a family by Roxana Asgarian. And it is more true crime slash narrative nonfiction, but it's very much a 
piercing and scathing look at the foster care system. It is focused in Texas on one particular really tragic case. But I think I think it's worth looking at and seeing like what she references there. I'm sure there's an index or bibliography, but that is the book that is top of my mind when I'm thinking about books about foster care and the system. Emily, thank you so much. You're an absolute rock star getting through so many in such a short period. Thank you so much again for doing this for us. For our listeners, if you want to get in your comp requests for March, make sure you get them in before the 15th of March so that we have enough time to have a look at them and tape. We will see you next month, Emily. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for calling in. And Bianca, thanks for this opportunity as always. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.